Tuesday, June the 6th, 2023. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. It is Belmont Stakes Week, so we're going to get a look at some Belmont racing very early in the week with the Thursday and Friday races at Belmont Park. So I'll take a look at races at Belmont for Thursday. I've got a best bet in the fourth race, and we'll look at races 7 through 10. There are two stakes races on Thursday, a graded stakes race there, so the action starts on Thursday with the big races. Then on Friday, they have five graded stakes races on the card. We'll mention all of them. We'll go through races 4, 8, 9, 10, and 11 on the Friday Belmont card. Then we'll get into Guardians of the Galaxy 3. It's the deep dive, our scene-by-scene recap and review with Tim Kelly. We loved this one. We were very excited to be back in the MCU talking about a movie that we, uh, we, we felt, a movie that gave us the feels. We finish up with the old wrestling rewatch. Andrew Champagne helps us out with NXT Philadelphia 2018. Two of the best matches you will ever see in the history of WWE, and they are back-to-back to close out the show. A fantastic ending to a really good show that Andrew and I dive into. On this episode of That's What G Said, that is presented by Thrive Fantasy. Do you like to play daily fantasy? Do you like to get some action when you're watching the game sometimes? Even just a few bucks here and there. Try out this new website, thrivefantasy.com. You can play in contests where you play against, you know, 100 other people. You put in a $20 entry. Winner gets 400 bucks. You know, a fun contest against a bunch of others. You can play in a head-to-head matchup. Or you can actually wager on parlays. You can wager on props if you parlay them. So if you're someone who likes to bet props over, under, on particular player props, right now we're in the NBA, Jokic, over, points, rebounds, assists, Bam Adebayo, points, over, under. You play those props, we talk about them here often. If you're in California, in Texas, anywhere where Thrive Fantasy is legal, you can actually wager legally on props as long as you put them in a parlay because it falls under contest wagering. Use our promo code GINO. It'll get you a deposit match bonus from 25 to 250. Go right now to Thrive Fantasy, promo code G-I-N-O, and check it out. Not only do those prop parlays give you access in places that you don't have them, they pay better for you. So if you were to go to a different website and bet a parlay of props, this gives you better value than any other place. ThriveFantasy.com. Use the promo code G-I-N-O. Let's get right into the horse racing. Thursday, Belmont, and Friday, Belmont, coming up right now. Horse racing fans, many of us have been using the DRF, the daily racing form, for years, studying the races, keeping up to date on news with all the articles. I remember looking for a copy at the local liquor store or picking one up at the local racetrack, wherever I was going. Now it's even easier and cheaper than ever to use DRF with DRF.com and the newly optimized DRF Mobile. You can get all the tracks that you want to bet and handicap. Past performances that are mobile optimized for on-the-go handicapping on your phone. So you go to drf.com from your mobile device, no additional cost. Tap the calendar icon on the top left. It opens all of the options for past performances and for the tools that are available. 
one click to bet now and DRF bets, get real time odds and scratches on race day. You can tap on any horse and you get those same DRF pass performances that you're familiar with with a larger font for your mobile display. One click to formulator for charts, for replays if you get the formulator version. And even on the classic pass performances, you get the home screen with horses, with odds, with buyers. You get a lifetime buyer speed figure graph. You can rotate your phone for the best view. And any horse that you click on, you'll see the running lines. You can easily move from horse to horse. The same data as those traditional classic DRF pass performances. You get an interactive format, which is... Very similar to the DRF Classic version that you're used to on the desktop. Every card includes live data updated instantly with those scratches. And so you get the accessibility from desktop to phone. Cross-device functionality. You can take your notes and save them from one device to the next. And then access your account on any of your devices. On-the-go handicapping and wagering. Multiple formats to view. You got the overview page with recent speed figures, current day's odds, easy access to expert selections and analysis. You got the buyer speed figure graph with lifetime buyer speed figures and chart notes for every horse. And you got those traditional DRF pass performances that are just newly optimized for your mobile phones. They are constantly upgrading, improving, and making everything easier for you to get your handicapping done at DRF.com. You want to spread your pony knowledge by. Download the Stable Duel app and play today. Daily Horse Racing Contest, StableDuel.com. Download the app. They have now expanded to the world of standard red racing, harness racing in the Stable Duel app. Games every single day. Go check it out. You can play for as little as a free games some days. Dollar contests all the way up to $100, $200, sometimes even bigger games for some of the bigger players. StableDuel.com. Get those entries in and play, race, win. Let's dive into Thursday, Belmont Park. I'm going to take a look at a, a horse I like in the fourth race, and then we'll look at the pick four sequence, seven through ten. We'll talk about those races. Two of them are stakes races there. Let's dive on into Thursday, Belmont Park. Just a few days out from the Belmont Stakes. It is a huge week at Belmont Park. On Thursday, two stakes races, the Jersey Girl and the Wonder again, the Grade 2 Wonder again. Then on Friday, they have five graded stakes races. On Saturday, with the Belmont as the feature, nine graded stakes races on the card for Saturday. A huge three days coming up. Let's look at, at Thursday, see if we can make some money to get the uh, the bankroll all built for the big Friday and Saturday. Daily Racing Form is uh, the place that I go whenever I need to handicap the races, whenever I'm going to start uh, putting in my research. DRF.com, big, big, big week for DRF users. If you are someone at DRF Bets with the DRF Pass Performances, everything you need there, and you have the opportunity to get Past performances, clocker reports Thursday through Sunday, betting strategies, player guide combo, 
Timeform USPPs, everything you need available at drf.com. Those Belmont Stakes Day Pass performances are now available. Go get them. Okay, let's talk Thursday. Let's talk about race number four. So I'm looking at the formulator past performances here. In this race, it's a, a non-winner's a two, optional 62. The number four, Good Sam, will take some money. This is a nice three-year-old filly. She's two for two. She won both of her starts last year, but we haven't seen her since November. So these these are the type of horses I always like trying to beat. For Chad Brown with Irad Ortiz Jr. aboard, for these connections, she's going to take a ton of money. I think right next door, we could look at Midnight Stroll, who could present us some good value. Her last two races, kind of similar. Towards the end of 2022, she was getting pretty good. She, I thought, put together like three solid races in a row when she won the Delaware Oaks. She comes back behind Society, who got really, really good at that time. And then she's behind Wicked Halo in the Raven Run. She's off from October to February, shows up in February. And in that race, there just wasn't a ton of passing. The winner of that race sat second. And she was in the second flight. She was in the two path in between. She's about two lengths off. She ran into a little bit of traffic. She moved up to challenge and then she faded. The fourth finisher won next out, Classy Edition, who we can take a look at here just uh, clicking in the chart. Classy Edition. So fourth place finisher, Tap Dance Fever, wins next out. Classy Edition goes on, tries the La Troyenne, and then recently won a New York bred stakes race as the heavy favorite. I think we can make a legitimate excuse for that race. It was coming off the bench, just ran like a filly who sort of needed it. And then on May the 14th, same type of thing. Was a step slow, was last, uh, about five off of a, and then made a four wide bid all the way up the challenge and then flattened out. I think she'll just have more fitness today, more bottom, a little bit more punch when she goes to make that move. She's going to get some class relief in here, dropping out of a string of graded stakes races. Uh, I like Midnight Stroll, putting two starts together in here. Midnight Stroll, 7-2 to in race number four. I would maybe single her in some of the early exotics if we can get anything 3-1-ish. to I think that's a very fair price to, uh, to play to win. Let's move on to some of the later races on the card. Seventh race, kind of a fun uh, wide-open turf race that kicks off your late pick four. Just so many different horses you could use. Um, a couple that were worth mentioning for me were the three, Maxwell Esquire, who I've just always sort of chased this horse I like, and I, I think he, he's in a pretty good spot here. He fits well, and he could offer you some nice value. Um, yeah, kind of a spread out race all over i don't have the strongest opinion seven cents will probably make it on a ticket or two of mine there's some better turf form here to get back to if we can just make an excuse and say he didn't love that the turf course and may may have needed the race too so a uh, couple long shots in that's the key right in a race that you feel is you know wide open use the prices uh, into the sunrise i wouldn't have any issue with look at that horse like after five who's in in good form right now so i just think this is a race where I'll look for a little bit more than, you know, a Casadero, who it's going to be nine to five with running with scissors with the entry there. Do have a little more of an opinion in race number eight, which is the Jersey girl. So a couple very talented fillies in here, red carpet ready six to five on the morning line. And she was really impressive winning the, uh, the eight bells. I mean, she's four for five or only, um, defeat came in the Devona Dale. 
I don't know about playing her from the rail in this spot, though, uh, at this price. I think she's the horse to beat. I prefer her to Chocolate Gelato, who's making her first start since the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies. Absolutely could win this race, but I'll prefer the horses with a little bit more recency. I kind of get led to Aunt Becca in this race if you're looking for a horse to bet in here. I thought her last effort was pretty impressive. Uh, she just sort of pushes through from the rail at Keeneland. She's the one in the race that we are about to watch. This was her third career start, and she didn't have the best beginning. It wasn't like a bad start, but she wasn't the fastest. I think they just wanted to push her through to keep out of trouble from the inside, and it worked out very well. She ends up you know, really crushing the, the field. So I thought it was a good ride from Brian Hernandez Jr. to make sure she was able to get out of any trouble and just kind of put her in a nice spot up towards the lead. So once she got challenged, she actually easily puts away that foe and, and then you know cuts cuts the corner nicely and, and um, stretches her legs and really, uh, really looks good. I like playing horses like this that come from Turfway. I think sometimes the horses that come out of the race, uh, the races at on synthetic tracks will be a little undervalued based on speed figures. Sometimes those horses just don't get as gaudy of numbers as the others do. And, uh, and that could, you know, that could help the price of a horse like Aunt Becca. If you look at the first two races at Turfway, they were really solid and just didn't get monster speed figures in those. And then when she went away from the synthetic, went over to Keeneland, she was 13 to one. And she really uh, easily dusted a, a non-winners of two allowance group. And the race she lost on March the 10th, they were flying in that race. The She finished fourth that day. She was sitting third, maybe fourth, about three lengths off. She moved into contention up the rail, but the deep closers all passed her. The three horses who finished in front of her were ninth, sixth, and 11th at the first quarter call. Everyone who was up close just packed it in. All the horses from the back of the pack came running. So just looking at her form, she's pretty quick. I actually wouldn't be shocked if she could sit a little bit in here. I really don't know if she needs the lead all that much. I, I think she can sit. It just depends on you know the race shape with her. I like that she's drawn a little bit more towards the outside. So Aunt Becca, I think, would be the horse to bet if we can get you know, 9 to 2 plus. I think the horse to beat is red carpet ready. I prefer over chocolate gelato. I have, I'll try to play against chocolate gelato first start of the year. Moving to the ninth, it's the grade two wonder again. This is a pretty contentious group because there's a lot of these lightly raced three-year-old fillies. But just looking at the way the race shapes up on paper, it really does look like Spansive is the horse to catch and beat. We've seen a little bit of speed from Juniper's Moon. I, I wouldn't be shocked if he tries. Uh, they try to get a little bit more aggressive with her because she was chasing Spansive last time out. I could also see one or two others of 30 Thou Kelvin has flashed a little bit of speed before. All-American Beauty has a had shown a little. But the horse who I actually think is kind of faster than it may look is the, the seven pre prerequisite. She had a really good start. We can watch her last race here. Uh, she actually lost to Spansive in the debut, but then came back in her next start. And we're watching the race, and prerequisite is the number six in this race. She's a good start, right with the leaders, but is what about five deep or so going into the turn? Because a lot of the horses to the inside wanted to hold their position. 
and was able to kind of move up into a pretty nice spot behind a really quick pace, sat third and was just behind two horses that were going very quickly. And once she was asked, I thought she responded really well. She held off the challenge of the favorite Highland Grace, who came back to win a maiden special weight start, uh, a maiden special weight in their next start. So prerequisite, I think can get a really nice trip here. Can she sit just a little closer to Spansive this time than she was able to in her debut? Looks like she showed some improvement in that second start. She got out of the gate a lot quicker, and she was much more forwardly placed in a race that was that was quick to the uh, to the half. She's already proven at a mile and an eighth. The number six prerequisite horse for me. If you're watching uh, along on social media now, we're going to see prerequisite who's just sitting a really nice spot in third, angle out and uh, move to the lead and hold off the challenge of the uh, the favorite who starts to move from the back of the pack. Overall, a good effort in career start number two. And I think that makes this one very playable at six to one. We would need four to one plus on prerequisite in order to uh, to make a play here. So and that's race number nine, the wonder again. I like prerequisite over Juniper's Moon, expansive. What in a race like this where it feels like they're a, they're a you know lightly uh, lightly raced and sort of evenly matched. I'm I'm just looking for horses that can provide a little bit more value. Revelita would be absolutely no shock at all. I don't know if she's that much better than everyone else to where she should be such a shorter price. She does exit some live races, no doubt about that, but. You know, so does if we're looking at Mission of Joy, she was in front of Mission of Joy. When I say she, Revelita, but Mission of Joy had a brutal trip that day. Juniper's Moon wasn't too far behind Mission of Joy, and then we saw Mission of Joy come back and look very impressive. So, fun race. When you have lots of directions to go, try to find value. Again, Venetia, I just think it's going to be a little bit shorter than I would want with her. It's no knock on her effort. She completely missed the break. She was last of 12 going into the turn. She was up on the heels. She got steadied back about eight or nine lengths off. She closed well, finished third, like a couple others in here, a bit more twos and sevens for me. Spansive will be in the mix also with the possibility that she could just steal this race. After those three, then I would look at Revelita and Venetia in at least unders, but maybe trying to beat them on the uh, on the win end a little bit with the number seven prerequisite. Let's close it out in race number 10. This is a maiden $40,000 claimer for New York bred seven furlongs on the turf course. couple worth mentioning here if you're playing any sort of late exotics. The three red butterfly gets a drop in class and was pretty good in that career debut sprinting. Had some trouble the second time on the turf and then the third time tried the dirt. We could eliminate that race. So if you're just playing off the the debut race, we actually know she can fire fresh also. The four follow the feds a little interesting to me. Thought her race last time on the turf was fine. She actually moved into contention. It was an okay fourth. Pratt keeps the faith. It's not like this is a group of monsters in here. I wouldn't be shocked to see her be competitive in this group. One who I sort of lean towards is the number eight, Finney's Harbor. So this Philly will be going seven furlongs, she's got big early speed. The only time she ran against Maiden Claimers, she actually ran her best race in her career debut. She finished fourth that day, and then she stepped up twice and faced New York Red Maiden Special Weights. And she didn't really run well in either of those, but 
keep in mind, they were against Vetter, and she at least showed speed in both of them. The positives for her. I mean, she looks like the horse to catch. And she actually has three winning turf siblings. Dr. Shane, who is a, a winner on the turf, Esther the Queen, and Dream Chasing. So there is some turf in this pedigree. Maybe she was just facing a little too tough. And she might have caught a field that she can really use that speed to her advantage. How good is she? I don't know. But she should reward you. Castellano jumps aboard and look up and down the field. Who is for sure as fast as she is? Pimanova hasn't been showing it as much late. And when she was fast, it was mainly going longer. You know, Robin and Eli hasn't shown that speed quite as much recently. Do we get a little from Maggie? Eight's the one to catch. Finney's Harbor. Horse to catch. Turf pedigree. Dropping in class. Some positives here for the eight. So Finney's Harbor will be in the mix for me. Pimanova right next door. Uh, exits a, a race where the top two were one, two all the way around. So she didn't really get a chance to close all that well. And you get Cormouche up aboard. I wouldn't be shocked to see her more forwardly placed. As we mentioned, she has a little bit more speed to use than she has been recently. Robin Eli's the, the horse to beat. Here, dropping back down in class. See if we can catch the eight. Finney's Harbor on a flyer. The three horse fits really well in here. Mention the four. Also, uh, follow the Fed as another exotic one to use. So, a look at some of the Thursday races at Belmont Park. Good luck to you all week long at Belmont Park. And remember to get to drf.com for all of your handicapping needs for the Belmont. drf.com will have clocker reports for each day past performances. Uh, You'll have betting strategies for the big day at Belmont Park. Good luck in all of your plays. One of the longtime sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full-service realtor. Now, that means she can help you out with anything you need in the world of real estate. Buying, selling, leasing. Maybe you just need help with some home improvement, so she can connect you to the right type of vendors like gardeners, painters, landscapers, all sorts of great folks that she's worked with, that has she has experience with. Maybe you need help with the loan process. She'll take care of that for you by connecting you with the right type of lender who will help you expedite that process, let you know anything that you need and what they can do for you. That's her job. She just wants to help make your life easier. The whole process of moving and relocating, it is stressful. There's so many things on our plate that we don't even realize or that we're not even comprehending. Let Cindy Carava take care of that for you. C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A dot com. Cindy Carava dot com. Let's move to Friday, Belmont Park. Five graded stakes races on the Friday card at Belmont. Let's give some thoughts on each of those right now. Friday, June the 9th, the day before the Belmont Stakes is a huge day of racing in itself. Five graded stakes races, three grade ones, the Acorn, the Belmont Gold Cup, the Intercontinental, the Just a Game, and the New York. So they have five graded stakes races on Friday and then nine of them on Saturday. Let's dive on in using the daily racing form past performances. If you ever need help, Handicapping the races, you know that daily racing form that you see at the tracks all over. You can get it online, drf.com. And right now, you can actually get the past performances for the Belmont Stakes Day if you need. And those past performances, you can get the classic ones or you can get the ones I'm looking at, the formulator. They have 
bunch of tools, clocker reports for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, betting strategies, players guide combo, time form us past performances, everything you need to succeed over at drf.com for your past performances all week long. Let's talk Belmont for Friday. Let's take a look at the stakes races throughout the day. So I thought the fourth race, you know, they put it earlier on in the card. I can't, really find a way to beat an Italian. This is a race that I won't be playing a whole heck of a lot. She's one to two on the morning line, and she just doesn't face anyone else who has her type of speed. New Year's Eve is right next door. She's been defeated by Didia in her last few, Spenderella. This is a very, very talented filly. Really talented. She just made her first start at four. She finished second that day. But I'm just concerned. Is she going to be in chase mode? Because... I think an Italian goes a little quicker than what she's used to or what she really wants to go. So I'm not sure. And, and then from a gambling standpoint, like, okay, Spenderella is two to one. Is that incredible value for you by beating an Italian? Maybe those two go at it. I was a little disappointed with Wakanaka being so far back last time out behind Spenderella and speak of the devil. And then now she has to deal with an Italian and here's speak of the devil who was so good in the distaff mile last year and just hasn't been able to really get back there. Her last effort was fine. It was fine. Just couldn't really get creative in here. I, I really had a tough time getting around an Italian who's just been in really nice form the last couple of years. But the late pick four is all graded stakes races, four of them in a row. And this is the grade one New York where Warlike Goddess will be your favorite. Warlike Goddess, third in the Breeders' Cup turf last year. Ten-time winner, over $2 million in earnings, 6-5 to five on the morning line. And she's going to be making her second start of the year. She'd have to work a little bit in the, the Bewitch, Temple City Terror. Made her, just going to dig down a, a little. Warlike Goddess was able to have uh, plenty left, was battle off and have, have some left in the tank there. But we're trying to beat Warlike Goddess. If we're trying to beat Warlike Goddess... Who are we going to use? I think a couple in here makes sense. With the Moonlight, obviously for Charles Appleby, who shows up here, when you look at the daily racing form statistics and the numbers, you can take a look at how Charles Appleby does overall with horses in graded stakes races here. So we can take a look at the class. Oh, where are we going here? Oh. Graded stakes and filter. So they're 20 for their last 46 in graded stakes races. That's a 43% winning percentage, 72% in the money with a $3.12 ROI. Uh, and just go through the horses the, the last few years. You see, they, they bring horses over. They know which horses fit, which horses belong, what their class levels are, and they bring them over expecting to win. And they generally do with the Moonlight was here earlier and with the moonlight finished second behind in Italian in the Jenny Wiley and chose to come in this race instead of trying to chase in Italian, thinking that at least they have a shot to try to close. Um, it's just so hard when you have, you know, when you're chasing a speed horse that's faster than you, sometimes there's nothing you can do. So she fits. She would be no shock. She went to Newmarket last time out, comes back to uh, North America for this one. The horses that I would be looking towards if I was trying to 
the Warlike Goddess. There's two of them. Uh, market Segmentation, who's lightly race Philly, and we've seen you know Chad Brown have a couple of these through the years, ones that I think just kind of keep improving and keep getting a little bit better and probably impressing him a little bit more than where they they initially what they initially thought of her. Now, from the beginning, she's she's been very good. But in this race, there's really not much early speed in here. She could be in a great spot. And I don't know if she's as good as, you know, Warlike Goddess and a horse like with the Moonlight. But what she does have, what she could have is a tactical advantage in this group. I also would love to see Pratt get a little aggressive with uh, Shantasara in the Hillsborough, sitting right off. She was a winner. And if you look back last a uh, couple years ago, at the end of 2021, when she was doing some of her best work, a couple of the really good races were when she's sitting up closer. I didn't love her race last time out, but I would I would hope for different tactics in here. And I, I think because the two and the four are both Chad Brown runners, I'm not sure if they're going to battle each other. I could see one of the two of them just getting aggressive and the other one being very content to sit second because – Virginia Joy's not as fast. I think if they want to be in front of her, they can be. And you know, towards the outside, do we get you know trying to get aggressive with with the moonlight? I, I I'm going to give the two and the four sh- chances because of the possible tactics in this race. And the seven's doors to beat. Warlike Goddess, obviously. I mean, she doesn't do much wrong. She's it's not like she hasn't encountered very slow paces like this before, right? But. When she does get beat, it's generally in situations where she's left with a little bit too much to do late. That is race number eight, the New York, grade one New York on the Friday card at Belmont Park. Right next door, it's another grade one. It's the grade one acorn. And we have your Kentucky Oaks winner, pretty mischievous, who is back in here. She'll have a, a tough foe right to her inside in Money's Gold, who was the runner-up in the eight bells, a very fast filly who will be trying to stretch it out to a mile and a 16th. I'd imagine they want to be winging it. I'm not sure if Money's Gold is going to try to sit in here, more so just try to run them off their feet. Pretty mischievous. She wants to sit off nicely, and it's very, very tough to to knock anything that, that she's done. Looking through the rest of the field, you have a horse like Good Girl, Bad Habits, who's a, a real wild card. The one that I... Landed on from a value-based standpoint would be a seed. I thought her effort in the eight bells when she was third was pretty good. She was fifth. She dropped back to sixth. She was outside. She was about three deep and only about three lengths off or so. And she loomed up and, and tried really hard. She just couldn't get to the top two. But she was making up a little bit of ground. And there wasn't all that much passing in that race. Red Carpet Ready made an early move. And Money's Gold was on the lead and battled back. So I, I do think a seed is one that I would uh, I would give a look to, and the other one that was interesting, I'm just kind of curious with randomize, no idea what she beat. She just looked good doing it. She was challenged by the six to five favorite, and she put that one away and opened up, earned a nice figure in doing so. Could be a very nice one. I thought the uh, I thought the eight was one to to throw into some of the late exotics there. A seed. Let's continue along to the Belmont Gold Cup. We're going to be going two miles in here. The two horses, the one to beat. Siskiny has a lot of this experience going very long against top quality. And that's the difference that this guy has versus some of the others. 
you know, some of the other U.S. horses, maybe we see them going a little bit longer, but we don't know against what level of competition. Horses that are coming out of the hurdle races and stuff like that too, same. This is the proven horse going long against really, really classy horses. Now, from a betting standpoint, I'm going to go all the way to the outside. I'm not quite worried about the post that much going so long. And this horse is a stone-cold closer, the Gray Wizard. But, you, you know, you go through his career race by race. And it's didn't fire in his debut. Then in his second start, he wins going a mile and a quarter on the synthetic. And then he comes to the U.S., a couple races against Allowance Company. He's in the he's in against Grade 3 Company behind Nation's Pride. He's running races that are consistently good. He just hadn't been able to put it all together. And then finally, I think when he went out to Southern California, maybe against a little bit softer company, it helped him figure things out. But when he showed back up in April at Keeneland, I thought it was a really nice effort. He was off for a couple months, and it was visually pretty impressive. About eight lengths off, he moved moved up kind of gradually just behind the leaders. He was looking for room. He got a nice opening to the inside. And one of the real reasons why I, I like him in this race, it feels like for a race like this going two miles, there's a pretty good amount of early speed of horses who will want to be forwardly placed in here. Cross border right next door. Wouldn't be shocked to see that one up close. We have a couple of other front runners, like a horse like Tartini, I think would want to be close up um, in here, a little more forwardly placed. And you no know, horse like the six, wouldn't be shocked to see close. Strong Tide wants to sit very, very close. You know what Tide of the Sea wants to do. He's got to go. And so does Channel Maker at this type of a distance. They both have to go. So for a two-mile race like this, I could see there being a fair amount of speed and set it up for some of these closers who may not normally get that type of pace going longer like this. The Gray Wizard, 10 to 1 on the number 13. So 13 and two, I'll use in a lot of exotics underneath them. Other horses I thought were interesting. Maybe the 11 high definition has a couple impressive races. um, And again, a horse who just has experience going these two mile or so races. Fitness should be no issue. And what do you do with Tartini who comes in from the, uh, the Asta La Vista at Turfway? I don't know. Maybe you throw him underneath in the, uh, the seven amazing grace who was just chasing such slow fractions last time out. They went 54-3 there. So amazing grace. Uh, wouldn't be a surprise, but lots of the gray wizard and uh, the the two Siskani for me. Let's move to the finale on Friday. Race number 11, Friday, June the 9th, is the grade three intercontinental. And I will probably play a ticket or two where I single Baystorm, who was a really nice second behind Caravel last time out. This was her first start since February, and she she had some trouble that day. She was just behind the leader. She was inside, and she got shuffled back. She lost like two lengths of positioning, and she had to move through traffic. She ended up winning the battle for second with Sarah Harper, and she has a lot more early speed than that. They just went very fast, and she just got caught in a bad spot, and it, it shuffled her. But she's just showed up with – Big race after big race after big race. It's just nothing bad on the page for her against top-level horses that have continued to run well. And I actually think, looking at the way the race shapes up, for a six-furlong sprint on the turf, there's not that much speed. See, that's what makes me want to include Sarah Harper a little bit because she 
she has a lot more speed than she showed in her last start. She actually came from way, way out of it. But can she get back to some of these races where she was big time speed? Because if she, if so, she's probably the most consistent, fastest horse in here. And I think Baystorm probably wants to sit off a little. But I'm de- I'm gonna use those two for sure because I feel like they will be forwardly placed in a race that it doesn't seem like it has that much early speed for this type of race. Amy sees a little bit more of a presser. Bubble Rock has speed going longer. I think she wants to sit off going good. A little bit more of a presser. Not exactly slow. You start eliminating horses in here, and who does it get back to? Baystorm sits a nice trip. And can Sarah Harper show some of that speed that she's shown throughout a lot of her career? Second start off the break. Some upside on the turf. She's only been on it twice. And one of them, she was behind Caravelle and chasing Caravelle. Bay Storm, the five, and the two, Sarah Harper, in a lot of exotics here for me. Bubble Rocks, probably the horse to beat. Amy C, it kind of an intriguing wild card. What worries me a bit about her is that her last three races are down the hill at Santa Anita, and that's a sort of tricky, unique course. Sometimes horses get very good down there, and it might be a little horse for course type thing. Now, she has ability. It wouldn't shock me. I, I feel like she'll probably be a tad undervalued in here. So Bay Storm, Sarah Harper, try to close things out with the with them in the 11th on Friday. A big Friday over at Belmont Park. Good luck to everyone playing the races on Friday. And we will have a lot more when it comes to Saturday for Belmont Stakes Day. Nine graded stakes races on the Belmont Saturday card. Good luck all week at Belmont. Remember, head to drf.com for your past performances and anything you need before you play the races. Those of you who are in the state of Iowa, you need to sign up for DRF Sportsbook account right now because we have a huge promotion. If you use the promo code FAST1000, you can get up to a $1,000 deposit match. Use the promo code FAST1000. Anywhere in the state of Iowa, sign up for a DRF Sportsbook account right now. You can wager legally on sports, and DRF Sportsbook will be growing and coming into more and more states. Let's move to Marvel. The MCU. Tim Kelly joins me for a deep dive on Guardians of the Galaxy 3. It finishes up the trilogy. Um, In my opinion, these are some of the best movies in the MCU. They are funny. They are fun. They make you feel things. You get emotional. This was a, a really, really good movie. I enjoyed it. And lately, because there's been so much Marvel content, it has watered a lot of it down. It hasn't felt like the special experience. This movie felt like one of those early Marvel movies, to me at least, and Tim felt similar. Let's dive on in to Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. We're going to get into everything from this movie, how it all ties together, how it may be involved in impacting other former movies. So, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, time to deep dive. Back in the world of the MCU, time to go back to the Marvel Universe as we get set for Guardians of the Galaxy 3 with our deep dive recap and review. Now, this will probably be the first time where we're slightly out of order. We really did that mainly for convenience of the host and hosts because uh, when the movies are out uh, in the theater, it's a little bit harder to watch them two, three, four times the way that we kind of like to before (laughs) we were able to get a recap in. So for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, we'll hit that one in the next week or two. Um, We'll discuss that. But for now, 
Let's talk about Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because we were able to watch that. It's still fresh in our minds. We saw it a few times. And I think I I was more excited to talk about this one, TK, than I was about Ant-Man. Yeah. It's probably a better way of putting it. <laughs> um, this felt a lot more like the Marvel experience, the MCU experience that I really liked for um, for years in that they're not all perfect. Most of these movies are not going right. to be perfect, but – it it checked so many of the boxes that I want from a movie when I go in. Um, I felt, I laughed, cried a little bit, and I thought it it did a really good job with a lot of characters. These movies have tough. Um, sometimes they have a tough task in that a movie like this has a entire cast of different characters that they have to check in with, and you want to make sure it feels like everybody gets enough screen time and nobody gets left out. Overall, I thought pretty good TK. So I feel good about, you know, this Wakanda forever. We've had a couple nice recent returns to the MCU after maybe three or four where we were eh, kind of trending the wrong way. Yeah, this is definitely a, a return to form. There's so many great set pieces here. And it's, uh, you know, it's not reinventing the wheel or anything like that, but it's it has a vision. This is something where, you know, from scene to scene and set piece to set piece, uh, we're seeing something new and something, you know, kind of unique, uh, a, a new spin on maybe something familiar. Uh, and there's a lot of joy in this film. There's a lot of connection. Uh, the characters mean something to each other, and they've grown to mean a lot to us as an audience. Uh, and so just to see them kind of uh, end their journey here in such a, a poetic uh, way, it, it, it was it was a really satisfying experience, which was uh, very, very good because we haven't really had that a lot in, in walking out of the theater from Marvel recently. And, Quantumania, and Quantumania Love and Thunder. Sour taste in my mouth. Oh, Thor, yes. Thor Love and Thunder also. And even leading back to last year, I didn't I wasn't as negative on like Doctor Strange as some were, but just kind of the mm -hmm. overall vibe. Of the last, you know, four or five projects, some of the TV shows felt yeah. a little um, the trend, half, half, you know, half-assed <laughs> in a nice way. Um, yep. Th this was good though. I mean, this felt like the things that we love. There was comedy and heart, and it. It's going to be hard not to compare this movie a lot to Quantum Mania because they were mm -hmm. right next to each other. You know, they yeah. came out right next to each other, but. In this movie, and I think they mentioned it on the Ringer podcast or one of the shows I was listening to, kind of re recapping this. You're in this, like you said, there's new settings, there's new places they're going, but it doesn't feel green screeny in a weird way. Like it feels no. like the the stuff all feels personal. The places where they are, even when they're like floating through space, for some yeah. weird reason in their in their goofy space suits in all different colors like that could be really corny and it kind of is but you feel it way more than when you're watching ant-man and it's like oh they're kind of all walking around on a big green screen it didn't feel as personal right. um maybe it's the characters the overall story i don't know but yeah. like that was something that was noticeable to me between the two movies i i think both movies uh it's fair to compare them because both movies are trying to do star wars uh, in in, a, right. in their own way, in a, in a unique new way, uh, and one hits the mark and the other misses it, uh, and it comes down to I think that that vision and the production design and uh, you know Guardians of the Galaxy having 
a, a strong vision. Whereas Quantumania, at least you know visually, it's a hodgepodge of just a, a, a whole lot of nothing. I don't want to yeah. go, go too deep into you know criticizing that movie right now, but um, yeah, just by comparison, Guardians does everything right that Quantumania does wrong. Yep, and uh, it, it was a it was a nice job for director James Gunn, who will put his finishing touches on the MCU because he's heading to DC now, I believe, to yeah. uh, to man things up for them. And he he has been one of the better kind of hit rate directors in the MCU, mm-hmm. right? Like the stuff that he's done is all pretty good quality. Oh yeah, I rewatched Gu- the original Guardians, and you know, as high as the praise is that we're giving you know volume three guardians of the galaxy is, is kind of a masterpiece at, yeah, as far as an mcu film is concerned yeah. that's that's I, as good as it gets of those three i i think i would rank them one three two of the three guardians yeah. movies um I think and me too like, two's not bad or anything at all i just like this one i and it may be because of the timing of it too like compared to some of the other movies that have come out and it's just like nice to feel like we're back home in like this comfortable mm-hmm. spot with these characters that we know that we love and honestly just the the way the movie is built where basically it's the story of saving rocket yeah. like it's a good story like it's a it's an easy to follow story like you said versus some of mm-hmm. the other movie shows things that we've been watching in the MCU now we're getting these really big concepts too mm-hmm. that are kind of new think about like moon knight and, um, yeah. you know, everything they're introducing to us with the character of Kamala Khan and her family. Like, there's a lot of new stuff in these shows and movies. This felt sort of like we're back home, this character that we love. We've known them for a couple different movies now. And a bunch of them just got to save their buddy. Yeah, and it, that's it's such a simple um, a simple goal for the team premise, to have. Yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah, that the premise is so strong because rocket has been just the heart of these films. And th- there's something about that archetype that, you know, that grizzled, you know, um, hard exterior character. Who's clearly also, you know, a, a, bi- a big soft, he's a raccoon. He's a cute, he's a little cutie, you know, and he's, 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 um, he's vulnerable. Uh, but he's got that, that shell up of, of, you know, that insecurity and, you know, now we get to learn the backstory. We get to learn why that is. And and it's what a heartbreaking uh, experience, you know, those oh. flashbacks throughout. The oh, film. my gosh. Flashbacks just... can, can go either way. But, I mean, these really worked. And uh, we can kind of get into it. We'll go chronologically through the movie and hit a lot of the big spots. And, and it's a perfect tie into where we start because that's where we start. We open the movie with a bunch of little baby raccoons. They're just so adorable. And they're all just in the cage and they're they're all playing with each other, all these little babies. And and then you can just feel the energy change and an ominous figure walks into the room and heads towards the cage and puts his hand in and grabs one of them out. And the way they do this, we see the eyes and the face of the little baby raccoon that gets selected and then it transforms to nowadays and it and we get to see rocket's eyes in his face just kind of trans transform from baby rocket to older rocket and they did that a couple times in the flashbacks which i thought was a really cool way to do it and uh, and now we're in present day but first up man they hit you right away where you're like oh look at the little babies look at the little ra-. and then they they don't show you anything bad yet but we 
we know where they're going. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. what makes a lot of this really pull at, at your heartstrings, like you said, because you know that Rocket is going to be someone who gets experimented on. And I think I said this to you when I texted you. When we meet the high evolutionary, we get a very, like, Edward Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. And it's even mentioned, like, Sid from Toy Story guy. Oh, like, yeah. there's there's some really cool um, kind of throwbacks and kind of ties to other movies and other yeah. other things we've seen. But what would you think right off the bat? Yeah, I love that that, that you noted that. that it's, like, it's like a gothic body horror kind of a tone that they he injected throughout the film. And, uh just a beautiful beginning. I, I love the the curiosity of uh, of of Rocket. How he's the only one that kind of you know stands his ground. He's he's scared, but he he stands his ground, and uh, he's the one that's selected. So it's his fate. Uh, but there's something special about him. It shows that from the beginning, he's the only one, uh, and that's a through line throughout the movie of the, uh, of the high evolutionary recognizing this thing that is so special about rocket and not being able to accept that because he wants that special thing for himself. Uh, so just a fantastic, uh, opening right here because it sets the tone for, you know, the seriousness of this, these flashbacks, uh, and it sets a, a little bit of a weight, uh, you know, to, to the film, uh, kind of reminds me of like X-Men, uh, the original Brian Singer X-Men opening up, yeah. uh, you know, b- b- behind, uh, I don't know if it was Auschwitz or it was in a uh, concentration camp. It was a very serious uh, beginning, you know, uh, a stark contrast to like the fun, you know, excitement of a superhero movie that you're going to get. Uh, so it, it, I think it really ra- like raises the stakes from the beginning. And then also beautifully rendered uh, creatures and characters in this film. And the raccoons just look amazing. And I don't think it can be understated how impactful the soundtracks and the music are in all these movies. They're so fantastic. And it makes yeah. people really feel even more. Because as we transition to present day, we see the Guardians. Uh, we've got Rocket, Groot, Nebula, Mantis, Kraglin, Cosmo the Space Dog. They're all living on nowhere. Um, but as they come in, the Rocket's hearing the song from Radiohead, Creep. And like the way it's being played as he's walking around and he's just sort of sadly singing it kind of he's having these flashbacks. We know why he's so sad. And they're all a little Mm -hmm. bit bummed because Peter Star-Lord, he's just emotionally distraught. He's still dealing with the fact that Gamora died, came back, but is not Gamora. So how weird is that, that the love of his life is there, but she doesn't even remember anything. He just keeps drinking himself, uh, you know, to to getting smashed repeatedly over and over to where they got to pick him up and take care of him. But in in looking at it, I really like, again, I got a great feel for Nowhere. It doesn't feel (laughs) like a state, like it doesn't feel like one of those green screens where they're not lit. This felt like one of the towns they would build for Andor or in the Star Wars Mm -hmm. ones where you feel like they're walking around their indoor. It made me feel like Waterworld too. that movie. You know, Um, there's some some feels of that. What do you think about the. uh, Yeah, I think they really built the set, right? Yeah, it was in the holiday special. 100 percent. You can tell it shows it shows up on screen. So that's really appreciated. I love that. The camera feels like it's like there in the space uh and the the choice of the music fantastic throughout this film i will say that i almost feel like there's a a, a pressure 
on James Gunn to have this like amazing soundtrack and all these needle drops in the film yeah. at this point. And it, it, I almost became numb to it after a certain point. I wonder if maybe there was like one or two or three songs too many. Too many. Yeah. I don't, I don't know which ones. They were all kind of perfect in their own ways, but still, uh, that was kind of the effect it had on me after a while. Uh, but this is a great choice here. The, the creep. It really highlights the place that Rocket's in, and it reminds us of. You know, we've we've gotten a little bit of his self-loathing and, you know, his um, unable to uh, accept who he is. He won't acknowledge or admit or admit or call himself a raccoon uh, up until, you know, this movie and, and the uh, and how his character evolves throughout it. Uh, so it's a great place to to pick up. And we just really see the sad space that he's in. He can't accept himself. He, he really thinks of himself that way. So uh, kind of just see where everybody is right now. Craglin and Cosmo are uh, testing out their abilities. Craglin's trying to use Yondu's old arrow with the, uh, the fin. He hasn't, he hasn't figured that one out yet. But as everyone is getting ready to wind down one night, all of a sudden out of nowhere, flying through space, a gold man, Adam Warlock, who yeah. was actually created uh, by the the sovereign high priestess and it was created by the high evolutionary. Who we're going to uh, be introduced to even more. He comes flying in full speed, crashes into rocket and he severely injures rocket. He rockets basically for the rest of the movie on life support. And the crew is trying to find a way to get him saved, find a way to get him, you know, completely back to life to where he's just hanging on his final threads. And we don't really know initially why uh, or what the um, the reasoning Adam Warlock shows up is, but he battles with everyone. Uh, we see him yeah. one-on-one with Nebula. Then we see him go, go at it with Groot. He tears off Groot's head. Um, then he and Drax go at it. He's Drax gets a few in, but he is about yeah. to kill Drax. Before Nebula comes back and she finally gets in with one of her blades. Um, so while all that's going on, Peter and Mantis are trying to help Rocket. He's got a bad wound. So we quickly get into a lot of action here. And great action. I mean, this was off off to a, a, a big start. And uh, I, I really liked Adam Warlock out of the gate here. And uh, I'll say too. as it went along, you know, I liked him less and less and how they used him. Uh, I think over ultimately overall uh, there's a lot of great things that they can do with him and it made sense what they ended up doing with him. But the best you get out of Adam Warlock is this sequence right here. And mm-hmm. I'll say this. I thought that maybe they were killing one or two of the guardians characters in this opening sequence. And that was something that I, I didn't expect. It reminded me of infinity war when uh, Thanos, we kind of opened that, that film with him just smashing up, Thor's ship and killing Loki. I mean, that establishes the stakes again uh, really well. I thought that, um, uh, who did I think was going to die? I thought like uh, Nebula was going to die. Everybody was going to die in this scene. And I I thought Rocket was maybe really dead, but it set up the premise for the whole film uh, in in a great way. And again, that that simple through line of of the story of just saving Rocket. I mean, that's a perfect, uh, that's a perfect thing. Everybody loves Rocky's kind of the heart of the of the team and uh, i think the audience's favorite characters uh if, if you did a poll probably he he would come up there pretty high so it was just a fantastic sequence 
uh, really well executed. And uh, I, I think uh, a great introduction to Adam Warlock. I wish they lived up to that uh, hype I a little agree. bit more. We'll, we'll see in, in the upcoming films. He went from this to being such just like a joke. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was so impressive right off the bat. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And then he just such a joke. Like, he has a couple funny moments, but um, uh-huh. yeah. And that's like, the that's... MCU paradigm right now, unfortunately. that like right? That's like a metaphor for what the MCU's kind of done and the way they've been trending recently and what they do to their characters and uh, in, in the wrong ways. Uh, when they yeah. did it wrong, I think, is they undermine it for the joke. And yeah, that was no, you're one right. Well, think about one. Think about one that uh, that worked well mm-hmm. so far, but you could see it going in a really weird direction. Would be Daredevil, mm. right? Yeah. Just like the tone when they brought him in, he's much more of a fun, loving, like not as brooding guy. Um, and mm-hmm. it worked fine when we saw him. Yeah, with for us. with She Hulk, you know, it, it was fine there. But yeah. moving forward, if they really leaned into it and he became more like. If he was too much like Deadpool, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that would work for him. The character is a little uh, bit different. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, totally agree. You're you're spot on there. They, It's a crutch they go to. The, mm-hmm. the humor, a little too much. Just sort of the way that DC gets too serious. Like, yeah, they yeah. don't get funny enough or they don't lean into the humor enough sometimes. Like, they take themselves a little too seriously. So, it'd be nice if we could get a little bit of a balance between the two and, and we'll see what happens more with uh, with Adam Warlock moving forward. But they mm-hmm. find out as they try to save Rocket, they put a med pack on Rocket and it's not working because Rocket has a kill switch in his body that could detonate if they attempt to perform surgery on him. This was placed in Rocket when he was created, when the high evolutionary created him. Because he wanted to make sure he's the only one that could go in and perform surgery on him, save him, alter anything about his makeup and about his DNA. So they're able to find out that they can override this, but they have to go to Orgocorp, the company that experimented on Rocket. So it makes a lot of sense, too. It's like the high evolutionary has to use this company as basically a front in order to perform a lot of these these experiments that he's doing. Um, this is like one of the companies that backs a lot of the experiments from the high evolutionary. So as the Guardians get ready to go on their task, find out information, get anything they can to help Rocket, we we get a few more flashbacks from Rocket, TK. And the first, these next couple are just like so sad. And shout out to James Gunn. He knew exactly what he was doing here with like, everyone's going to be sad. Everyone's going to be feeling it with these characters. Like, you know exactly what you're doing. And unfortunately, TK, we haven't seen these characters again. We probably can assume that they're not going to be around for all too long. So once we get introduced to them, it's just. uh... So flashback to first him rocket being experimented on. We actually see him like in the chair. He's marked 89P13. And then after some surgery, they toss him in a cage with a couple other test subjects. Those are an otter that has metal arms voiced by Linda Cardellini, who is like one of my favorite people in the entire world. She is yep. incredible, beautiful, like awesome in everything that she's in. And I just feel like she's just, uh, she's great. Then and you have. That too. Oh, she's gosh, she's so great. She's so great. Then you got the walrus with wheels 
and you have a rabbit that has all these other like spider arms and legs. Um, yeah. These sure. misfits, but they become this group of friends. And little baby Rocket gets thrown into this cage, and when they when they appear, they're all scary looking. You know, yeah, oh, yeah. they look terrifying, but they comfort him right away. They give him a, a little towel, and Lila actually like licks it, and she she cleans some of his wounds on the top of his head because his, his head is kind of there's been surgery and it's been cut open. Mm-hmm. And the poor little guy, the first oh. thing he says when she she's talking <laughs> to him, it's okay. How are you? He says, hurts. I was like, oh my seriously, God. <laughs> it just. It just caught me, man. He says that right yeah. off the bat. Oh man! Cut to the quick on that one. Like yeah, that was, like, that's all you needed right there to just get fully behind these characters and just want to murder, want to eat the face off the high evolutionary. Like oh that's what gosh. you want at this point. They set it up so masterfully, uh, and yeah. That that how could that not affect you? He's so childlike in that moment. He's just like a, a little baby, and he's saying hurts, and you just feel for this, you know. And it's a CG character, right? But that's what you want. You want to lose yourself in in the experience in the movie, and to get that from a a comic book film, you know. Shout out to James Gunn. He's really uh, delivering on this one. We check back in on um, Counter Earth. So this is the place that the High Evolutionary has created. This is our big evil villain for the movie he has created what he thinks is a new world that's his that's his goal he wants to create the perfect world and then have the perfect species all mastered to have them live in that world um and he keeps trial and error until he feels like he's going to get it perfected but the problem is someone like that they're never going to get it perfected they're always going to think something needs more something can be fixed something can be better they're never going to let something sit as is he thinks he's a god i was reading it somewhere and they said that if you ever hear someone in the mcu say they're a god they're not going to be around for much longer you know what i mean like you don't say you're a god when you're a god right you don't have to tell everyone you're a god that's more (laughs) of the evil in you and uh what did you think of the the introduction here to the high evolutionary. We see him okay. talking with Adam and Aisha, he, a couple of his creations, and he, you know, he talks down to all of them. They're all his subjects. They're all his test subjects. But we yeah. we've seen a couple different sides of him at this point, right? When they showed him initially with Rocket, they did show moments where him and Rocket are bonding. Yeah, they listen to music. He's actually teaching Rocket things and trying to to kind of gauge the capacity of rocket the mental capacity see how his brain works so they do show you that that's what it made me feel like when i said edward scissorhands because mm-hmm. when you watch the guy the creator in edward scissorhands he never feels evil he doesn't really mm-hmm. feel like an evil guy he feels like he loves edward and and he's right, just right. but you got real conflicting um like feelings of this high evolutionary early on and then we could quickly see the guy's a bad dude yeah, yeah. They they let on that he's unhinged, but you really get to see how unhinged he is late, later on. And, and it becomes very clear that he just has no empathy, no morals, and he's just a sadistic uh, being. I wouldn't call him a human being. I don't know what he is, uh, uh, but he's just a sick person, you know. And uh, I, I love that com- comparison that you made to Sid from Toy Story, 
Uh, I think the introduction of, you know, all the little creature characters, the little hybrid mm-hmm. uh, animal machines, uh, that reminded me of those broken toys and, and that, that sequence of when, when you uh, discover that they're actually really kind and sweet, even though they look, you know, disfigured and whatnot. That's a big theme for this uh, film as a whole. You know, you mentioned it, the high evolutionary rejects all of the, anything that uh, he views as imperfect, but the theme of this film is is about you know finding the beauty and the the, the value and you know the imperfect things and, and that we're all imperfect and that we all have value uh, and discovering that and understanding that about ourselves and that's Rocket's journey throughout the you know all these films all the Guardians films so I thought that that was really well done uh, we find and, um, yeah go ahead we find in one of the flashbacks why Rocket is so important to him why he sent the warlock to go find rocket mm. because in all of the experiments that he's done with all of the subjects nobody's brain has ever been as incredible as rockets in fact yeah. rocket is smarter than the high evolutionary he's able to figure out problems that the high evolutionary can't figure out himself and that is what has made him so frustrated but also so enamored with rocket how can this yeah. thing that I created know more than me when I programmed it? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it's sort of driving him wild, insane, into the mm-hmm. point where he wants Rocket studied. He wants him cut open, and he wants to figure out why that brain works differently than anyone else's. Yeah, he's obsessed with it. I, I love that uh, about the character, and that's what uh, drives his you know unhinged madness throughout the film. And it, it gets more and more so uh, as the film progresses. I mean, he, he's really uh, doing a great job, the actor here, of, of, uh, of just going over the top and big, but not, but still selling the reality of it. I mean, he's chewing up the scenery, but in, in the best ways. Uh, he's, he's, he's a kind of one note uh, villain in that he's not really justified. You get, you get his motivation. His motivations are very clear, but it's not like a motivation that like the audience is being asked to kind of empathize with. It's this very unhinged, selfish kind of uh, modus operandi. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And I also love the the detail. I think it kind of makes up for um, Adam Warlock's, it, it provides at least a reasoning for why he's kind of silly throughout this film, that he was half-baked, that he was kind of let out early yeah. uh, from his <laughs> incubation, uh, whatever it is. like. Uh, so he he's basically a newborn throughout this film, and uh, they play with that a lot for humor. I don't know if it quite landed like they wanted it to, but it does make sense uh, and provide an opportunity for the character to um, to grow throughout the you know the series. He's going to literally mature uh, and probably at a fast rate. So the next time we see him, he'll be a totally different version than what we've seen throughout this uh, series. But they're doing a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, they're getting a lot of this information to us very quickly, you know, this backstory and they're, they're uh, moving the plot right along. So the guardians arrive at Orgoscope. Now keep in mm-hmm. mind, Rocket is having these flashbacks, but he's out of commission. He's laying down wires all in him. They're just trying to find a way to get him saved because he doesn't have many, um, many moments left to live. But as they get ready to go to or- Orgoscope, we see the Ravagers show up mm. and we have not realized that Nebula called upon Gamora for help. 
which is going to lead to some awkwardness, obviously, because Peter is still in love with her. Gamora doesn't really even know who he is. And everything that they've experienced before, she has no idea. So that would just be such a strange experience if, like, someone that you were in love with had amnesia or, you know, uh, Alzheimer's as they get older, you know, which is a real thing. But for him, it it, it does play on a lot of humor in here, Uh, in particular when they all get suited up. So we have Peter, we have Gamora, Nebula, we have Mantis, Drax, and they all get in different colored spacesuits in order to go to uh, the uh, Orgoscope from Orgoscope from their uh, from the ship. And well, it's just silly as they're like floating through space. They look like a bunch of Skittles. You know, they're all different, like bright, different colors. But what, as they're getting ready to go in, there is a funny moment where Peter tries to have a, a one-on-one with Gamora. And he thinks he's pressing uh, the button that, that's, a, that's able to talk and communicate just with the person in that colored suit. So he presses the button just <laughs> to talk with Gamora, not realizing that all the buttons are wired differently. So they're like okay. none of them are actually for the colors that they meet, the color suits that they mean, or for the buttons that you would think. So as he thinks yeah. he's having this sweet heart to heart with her, everybody else is hearing this awkward, like cringy him like, I love you. Like we had these moments. It was so great. And I just I don't know what to, I'm so alone. And she's just, um, okay. Like I don't I don't know you. And it it was pretty good uh hearing like Drax and Mantis and uh, Nebula. Yeah. Oh, is, is, was it going to ever stop? How painful. That was awkward. So, <laughs> the, I thought that was a pretty funny uh, a funny little moment there. I liked it a lot, too. It was it was such a sincere and vulnerable moment uh, from Quill. And then uh, it was undercut by the the, uh, the humor of the scene, but not in a way that, you know, took a, away from it. It w- it was it made sense in the context of, of the uh, of the action there. And uh, I, I loved that it. it was like it's seemingly they could have done it in a normal way. They could have done it color coded in a way that made sense, but they just didn't. It was just one off all the way down. So the whole thing got thrown. Uh, And it was funny. I I think our, our buddy on new rock stars had said that the colors, which is great, kind of made sense to like colors that some of their original characters had in some of the comics and stuff, which is, it's so great when there's layers to it like that. When you look in, it's like, yeah. oh, the Drax color was actually the color that Drax was going to be, but they didn't want to make him green because there was already the Hulk and other green characters. Yeah. So they made him more like gray, which I, I like that kind of stuff. And uh, we always shout them out. But New Rockstars does a great job getting you real yeah. deep into uh, some of the Easter eggs and, and some of the weeds there. I think they but- also pointed out about about those um, spacesuits. Uh, the Internet thought it was maybe based on Among Us. It looks a lot like that game Among oh, Us. Yes. The in that. But apparently James Gunn was inspired uh, by the, the spacesuits in 2001 Space, space Odyssey. Odyssey. Which is great. Yeah. Cool great little film. tidbits. So as they get onto the o- Orgoscorp, they find their way into one room and they're able to quickly get out of their spacesuits before some of the, uh, the people who work there find them. One of them is Master Karja. Um, they they had a funny dynamic too with some of the security there, where the one the head of the security is like hated w- one of his yeah. underlings because he was yeah. like the boss's son. Or it, it was pretty. Fill in. 
yeah. played the uh, the head of security, Nathan Fillion from Firefly, and uh, who's worked with James Gunn in a bunch. We just saw him in uh, in uh, the Suicide Squad. I forget the name yeah. of the character, but he's the guy who's losing his arms. Like his, his arms could operate independently of him, and they ended up getting destroyed at one point. And I think he actually low key survived, even though he looked like he died. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe we'll be seeing more of him in the DC universe. So what was funny about this is as they split up and they try to go find Rocket's file. So now they're in here. They're trying to find any information they can about Rocket, about the his life experiments. They would need to find how they can get the kill switch turned off so they can operate on him, save his life. We're separated um, in groups here where we have Mantis and Drax together. And then we have Peter and Nebula and Gamora. <laughs> and the energy the whole time with them is really funny. Like yeah. Peter is flirting with this like clerk there that, that they're trying to ask for help to get them some of Rocket's information. He's trying to be really nice to her. He's sort of trying to also like show off in front of yeah. Gamora. But then at the same time, there's also this weird energy between him and Nebula now. Yeah. Because they've been spending time together and he's got all these repressed feelings that are sort of being directed towards Nebula because she's Gamora's sister. Yeah. I I laughed pretty hard a couple times because of, it's so awkward. Like when they're in yeah. the elevator and he's talking. Elevator's great. And then nobody's saying anything and he just keeps going. He keeps yeah, rattling yeah. on. And I think he gets to the point at the end where he says, um, what did he say? I got to figure it. I, I think I had the quote down here and it was really, really funny. Um, gosh, I, I, I think I, he, he said something along the lines of I'm just met a, a girl, met a guy from earth who met a girl, <laughs> fell in love. She died. She came back. She doesn't remember. It was something just like, but it was yeah. so simple. And then, uh, Nebula said something along the lines of, well, yeah, I mean, you simplified it, but that was, that was basically it. And <laughs> that was basically it. It was good, yeah. man. It was good stuff. And um, I think I heard in, a, in an interview, Karen Gillum, who plays uh, Nebula, she had said that she thinks that her character has always had a crush on Star-Lord, on Peter. Nice. So that's nice. something that's been going on, you know, in the subtext this whole time. You can kind of see it in her reaction in the elevator there, uh, where she's kind of, um, yeah, she, she seems uh, a little bit, disarmed when he directs his attention towards her and you also see there's there's other moments throughout the film like where he um she's taking care of peter earlier on in the film when he's completely cleaning drunk. him up when he's drunk and, and, and he says gamora she's become man, sort of like the, the mother right of the group mm. she seems yeah. like she yells and screams at everyone but she does take care of everyone and, yeah. and yeah. even at the end of the movie where we're skipping ahead a little bit but she and Drax are the ones that are going to stay and take care of everyone in nowhere. Yeah. So mother and father. Yeah. She's become that, that role. And it, it is funny. Um, uh, I, I just made me chuckle a, a bunch because they, they're, I, somebody had said this, that a couple of the recent movies for star Lord, he was getting a little more of like a guy playing a, a version of him, you know, like mm. someone playing, a character of Star Wars, and he was kind of trying to be a little too cool and not mm-hmm. not as dorky, like what what mm-hmm. we love, like we like about this guy that he can really make you feel. But then at the same moment, he can be a badass right after. But 
he's not a guy who just is always like really tough saying the cool thing. Like he's a dork. <laughs> and we really saw it a lot in this movie again when he was he like emotionally leaving it all out there. And yeah. I, I thought the that mo these moments when they were trying to get the information and it actually works. Like the girl I think is yeah. so uh, the the clerk, she's so like taken by him and she think I think she probably feels so bad for him and all the stories he keeps going on and on that she actually does want to help them and she does end up getting them their uh the file so they have rocket's file here um you know Drax and Mantis and have to fight off some of the guards and we we get a battle there before they're able to make their way out but they uh, they get that file and so now the plan is head back see what they can find out and try to take care of Rocket. So the the getting to Org the score before we leave there, I did think the look of it was kind of cool. It was different. It was yeah. like flesh. They called it a, a yeah. flesh type. Whole concept. Yeah. Um, so it, again, it's hard to see things that we haven't seen before or new things or different things. And when they're brought into the picture, sometimes they look really off. I thought the, cool, the look of this was cool. So, yeah, it was unique. I mean, like, say what you want about the MCU movies. Like one of the one of the complaints recently has been they all are starting to look the same. And Quantumania was like a really bad example or a good example of how that's been been trending badly. Uh, but this I mean, what other MCU film looks like any frame during this sequence? It was it was totally unique. I mean, it has its inspirations, but. It was based on like a really cool concept of this organic, um, I guess it's like a floating city or space station or uh, I, I'm not sure it, it, the exact scale of it, but how cool of like that everything was kind of made of living matter. Even the the suits of the, the guards inside were made of this living matter. Um, the production design choice of it, I thought, was uh, a bold one. It kind of drew attention to it as. Uh, you know that it, that it was a costume and that it was production design in in a way. So it, it, the artifice of it was kind of um, like up up front and center in in a way, uh, and almost like a Wes Anderson uh, film or something like that, where you're really seeing and feeling the the uh, the hand, you know, behind the you know the puppeteer behind uh, you know the, the the behind the scenes pulling the strings on things, uh, but it it works. I really liked that about it. It was like a bold choice and an interesting uh, diversion from what we usually get in an MCU film. And uh, I think you can really only get that when you give somebody like James Gunn the reins to do what they want. We then get back to Rocket and we're on the ship with him, but we have another flashback and he is with his friends and they're playing and they're dreaming and they talk about how when they get to the new world, they want new. They want names because they're they're only referenced as numbers. This scene where they sit together and plan out their future and talk about their names. It's just another one where you're, oh man, it's so sad. They come up with Lila for the otter. The walrus calls himself Teefs with his big teeth. The rabbit, since she's laying on the floor, her her name is Floor. And Rocket sees a rocket earlier on. And that is something that really, uh, really excites him. He wants to go up into to space. So he calls himself Rocket. And they talk about some of their adventures when they're going to head to the new world. It is yeah. so sad because we all know that they're just never meant for the new world. 
Yeah, I love the phrasing they use of uh, the forever and beautiful sky. They they use it in the trailer. There's something very poetic about that, and um, just uh, you you're, you're immediately, you know, you're already on board with these characters, but like now you know exactly what they want. They want to get out of this uh, place, obviously, but like they want to go into this forever and beautiful sky. What what a you know, beautiful sentiment that is, and. It's just setting us up for such heartbreak. I mean, it's it's making this beautiful image just so they can really tear it down uh, in in the coming scenes and, and give Rocket some some really difficult uh, stuff to go through. And we actually see the Guardians play Rocket's file, and they mm-hmm. they can see what happened to him. But they can see the surgery being performed, like everything is on uh, on video and being filmed. And Nebula even says, this is worse than what Thanos did to me. Yeah. And we get the Guardians for the first time really understanding what happened to their friend and what he's been through. Yeah. And, and they're they're changed by it because, you know, they knew before that. But seeing it, it, it just makes it different. Seeing is believing. Right. Like they it took it to a whole new level. They They knew that he was experimented on. But. The ways that it did, the, the the extreme nature of it. I mean, literally tearing him apart. I mean, as I a baby too. That earlier, oh yeah, it's just a, a vulnerable baby and this sentient, thinking, feeling, uh, being. You know, it's not just this. It's not a stuffed animal. It's not, you know, a robot that was created. It was it was a real thinking, feeling thing. And maybe Rocket was even of higher intelligence from the beginning. I think that's what they're kind of uh, inferring. Maybe that he was kind of a, an outlier all along. So he always could think and feel more intensely than maybe some of his uh, his raccoon peers. Uh, maybe he's got that mutant X gene, but the, the rocket version or something like that, you know, who knows? Whatever it was, uh, the high evolutionary was after it for himself. And we see when the high evolutionary brings rocket to to the next experiments he can't figure out why things keep going wrong this was so much like teenage mutant ninja turtles right yeah, where oh, you saw big time you saw him put uh he put a turtle in this like chamber yeah. to try to get the turtle um you know r- uh, really uh, ec- like built up blown up bigger just um like super ser- soldier serum type thing you know for for all these animals and the problem with the evolu- the high evolutionary was coming to is as they got bigger and bigger and bigger, their aggression became more and more and more and more. So they would just kill everyone and <laughs> they would end up having to kill all of these experiments. And as the one of the turtle, he looked like the turtle. The turtle in I mean, Ninja Turtles when they said like not not the regular ones, but when they said the which one's the ugly one? I got the ugly <laughs> one in the like the big one there. I love that part. I actually just watched that like a week ago. All three of them in a row. I was just looking for something silly to watch while I was doing my work, and I threw them on in the background. And uh, the first one is really good. I'll stand yeah, by that. It's, it's me too. It's great. The third one is uh, way film off. that was a huge success. Amazing. Third one's yeah. Awful. The- hate when they have to Honestly, change the April yeah. O'Neils. You know what I mean? As soon as you do that oh, yeah. in the movie, you're always in trouble. And I think that's happened in the second one, right? They went from a different to a different April. Mm-hmm. So, But at least the third one did bring back Elias Codius as uh, he, Casey Jones. He's great. He is he's great. He's kind of babysitting some samurais the whole time. But, uh, yeah. but you know. <laughs> 
He plays a funny role considered. too. He's he plays a role in a movie called The Greatest Game Ever Played, where he's the father of Shia LaBeouf and like a, a really golf movie, serious right? golf movie. And it's so yeah. funny seeing him as like the serious father in the 1900s. Huh. And like I was like thinking of him <laughs> as teenage vision. I was like, no way, that can't be the same guy. That it took. I had to look it up like three times, and sure enough, it it, it absolutely was. But um, it, it it's. Something that instead of impressing the high evolutionary and and, you know, having Rocket be his main uh, engineer or a part of the team, he's jealous. He wants to know why Rocket knows things that he doesn't know. He wants to cut him open and study his brain. And he just says to kill all of the other test subjects because we know they're not good enough. And that was the first time Rocket had heard that. He didn't realize he was a failed experiment. And the high evolutionary says something to him at this point, too, where he said, you were smart enough to know what needed fixing here, but you weren't smart enough to know that you wouldn't be in the new world. Mm. It was so sad, but it's something you think about, too, because so many people out there who are like geniuses, they kind of lack the common sense or sometimes the like social skills Mm -hmm. to go out there. So few people have it all. Right. If you're really smart on other stuff or maybe if you're really like good with people, you're not quite as smart with the books and stuff like that. But poor Rocket can't even understand that him and his friends are total misfits just being tossed off in the cage to the side. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's also that thing of like where you kind of believe what you want to believe. And sometimes you you can't accept, you know, things that you would really not want to believe. And the high evolutionary is just like father figure at this point to him he's he's a parental thing he's an abusive father it's figure all he knows. doesn't that's all he knows exactly but even still let's give rocket a little bit more credit too because he had a plan all along he had contingencies set up and we see mm-hmm. that in the upcoming um scene that he he was prepared for this day and he has uh, a way out we see adam the warlock um, he and Aisha, his mom, they were sent by the high evolutionary to find out, to kind of follow the trail of Rocket. So they actually go to the Orgoscope. They find out information that the Ravagers had been there. And actually, one of the Ravagers is still around with their pet, and Warlock kills him quickly. <laughs> Doesn't mean to, but he just kills him. Uh, and then the pet hangs around with Warlock for a while. But we we understand now that they overhear on a radio what's going on. So at least they're they're able to follow along with follow the Guardians and they're able to stay kind of hot on their tracks. So um, just a scene to let us know a little bit more about the Warlock and why they're following them along and, and kind of the process of everything. But it's like a small thing, but it just it helps kind of make sense. Like, how do they... Yeah. Figured it's a plot thing they needed. Okay, they heard it on a radio. They know where they're going. Okay, now they can follow them. <laughs> we get to Counter-Earth, TK. This mm-hmm. is a replica of 1980s Earth that the High Evolutionary has created. This is like a floating world in the sky, like a, like a planet. And when they get down to Counter-Earth, it's got all these like suburban neighborhoods with different humanoid animal creatures yeah. is what they were referenced as you've got like full-grown pig men mowing their lawn you've got like full-on like 
every different style of animal as a humanoid living yeah. in homes together next to each other in a, a, like small houses. And it's kind of funny to see, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, they crash land on counter earth, the guardians do, and they are looking for help. Right off the bat, there's a little awkward interaction where Drax takes a ball and throws it at this little girl's <laughs> head. He thinks he's, he's just trying to play with her, but he throws it a little too far. And that, then everybody, that, oh my God, <laughs> that was that in the trailer? I think that was in the trailer, right? Yes. It, I I skipped the trailers, and when I saw that in the in the in the movie, I just guffawed laughing. I couldn't believe, like, I I was shocked at the moment. I loved it, uh, and I just that was one of those things where I was like, oh, like I think I heard after the fact it was in the trailer, and I'm was so thankful that I just said skipped it because that moment just <laughs> completely got me, and it would have been completely uh, ruined, I think, if I had seen it. A dozen times you know on tv really good stuff um but one of the families decides to help out the guardians so they go into this home and uh they're able to interact with this woman it's it was so great like the little things that they did with this family too like she brings them in the house and the husband's in the back, like shaking his head like oh what's my wife doing why is she bringing these people (laughs) in the house and and then everybody's out on their lawn eavesdropping trying to look in their window and like she goes and she shuts the blinds and just like little things like that are small things that that help you know drax keeps laying down on the couch and putting his feet up and they keep having to correct that telling him (laughs) to sit down and uh you could see he's about to fall asleep and small little things made me laugh quite a bit and they're able to get some help from this woman she gives him the car Mm-hmm. And she points them into the direction of where the the high evolutionary is, where the their leader, their ruler is. So they yeah. uh, they're they're on their way. I I do oh. have to mention. I do have before to mention. We go, before we oh. go on, I know I know where you're gonna go. The car, with this. See the car one. Is yes. That, uh, before we get to that, please I, do it. I, wanted to, I just wanted to talk about uh, was it was this weird at all to you? Because this sequence, uh, I liked it ultimately, it but was so I had. Weird. I had I had questions about things. Um, well, for just the, the premise of it, like what is the time scale of, of all these projects? Like I, I couldn't quite wrap my head around that. Like, it seems like, okay, well this would have had to have been going on for quite for a year, long time years, right? to have this like, thing established. I mean, many, many years you would think. So I just, and then I wasn't he just sure snaps old... his fingers and is willing to bomb this thing and, and blow right. it up. Like he, and ha- it is so, quickly. So you're right. Is this, like, does he have multiple, four, five, and six of these things going on at one time? All these is he different- thousands of years old, like Earth years old. Like, I, I don't really understand how he works. What's his anatomy? What's his um, what's his he, species? Is he just a human being evolution. from Earth or something? You know, he makes uh, a reference to having music that's five thousand years old, which is something right. that was pointed out. Is that music that was given to him? Has he been around all that time? Somebody said something about Eternals. You know, is he right? Right. Um, some. Something to keep an eye on with that because it it was weird. Mm-hmm. It was very yeah. weird. It almost and felt I, like it, it, I don't. You're right. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't think it was bad or necessarily good. It was. Mm-hmm. It almost felt like a different movie. Like it, it felt did. a little yeah. bit out of, almost out of place. Like it felt like an episode of a TV show in the middle of the movie. Like 100%. it was like an episode of Star Trek or something like 100%. that. Hundred percent. It it, uh, it was just a little 
like the tone of the movie when they mm-hmm. get there, it's it's just different. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I I completely agree with that, and and you could feel it when they get there. I don't know if it was bad or good. It was like, well, this is just like a totally. It it reminded me of Wandavision in a little bit, like you said, the TV yeah. show. Like you're Same. seeing, especially with the suburban stuff, you know, in the way it was, yeah. but um. Felt like a staged suburban uh, environment rather than something that could be real, which which kind of made sense because it was staged right by the high evolutionary. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is a huge experiment. It just I, I I wanted to understand a little bit more of how that worked. And that was kind of distracting me a little bit of like just I needed some of the logic to, to kind sure. of form for me. And I ultimately was able to just go go with it because it was entertaining. They, they peppered it with so much character stuff and they weren't there ultimately that long. Uh, it was just one step on the way of this journey. Uh, but but there was some weird stuff there. There was one other weird thing that I noticed, like, after the ball and everybody's running away, uh, screaming. Wait, I think they didn't Groot get big there? Did yeah, they, Groot, we he went part? crazy. Groot got yeah. really big and scared everybody. So that was uh, an interesting moment. Uh, but then the, the lady that helps them, I think, is the lady that falls down, scrapes her knee. And then I think Quill offers, like, the dirtiest rag to, yeah. to wipe Here, off her. Let me clean your knee. <laughs> like what did you just blow your nose into that like 28 times what Seriously, what's happening about infections here? i'm not gonna wipe my yeah. knee with that thing seriously but i guess he doesn't know about it? yeah yeah i don't i don't know but that, that was a weird little detail that i i thought uh was was kind of funny but yeah you were about to get to one of my favorite parts of this movie one of the more noteworthy uh kind of it's kind of a throwaway thing it, it could not be in the movie and it wouldn't really change much but it, it gave a lot of joy to me at least and i think to a lot of people <laughs> so they're they're getting in the car <laughs> and it's peter nebula and uh i guess it's just them two getting in the car the two the two of them and mm-hmm. um and groot the three so the three of them because uh, right, right. mantis and drax uh stay back and keep an eye on rocket and and on the ship so as they get in the car peter gets in the driver's seat. Keep in mind, he doesn't know how to drive, first off, because, you know, he left <laughs> Earth when he was a, a kid. But he gets in, and he's sitting there, and and Nebula's trying to open the door, and it's like an older model of a car. So it's got one of those on the where you have to push and then open the handle. You have to do it simultaneously. So if you just try to open the handle and you're not pushing, it's not going to open. And... It Nebula's sitting there trying to struggle with it, and it's just such a real interaction that like yeah. I could feel people having. Or if someone was like drunk trying to get in your car and they couldn't do it, you know, and you're like, just op- press the button and open the handle. And she's like, I'm doing it. He's like, No, no, you're not. It seems like you're pushing the keyhole. And she's like, No, I'm, I'm. Pre-. Oh, and then she presses it. She's like, I'm pressing the button now. What? Open the fucking door. He just says. <laughs> And it was the only, it was the first non-bleeped F-word, I believe, yeah. that they've dropped. In the, in the MCU. Yeah. In the MCU. We've heard F-words be bleeped. We've heard them, like, start and then stop. There's running jokes with characters yeah. that say, what the, and they, but this Spider-Man. was, it was mm-hmm. so funny because it was such an insignificant moment for them yeah. to use the F-word. That's why it was great. It wasn't like, F you to someone in a big, in a big thing. It was. <laughs> It was so funny when she's the keyhole part. He says, "No, it looks yeah. like you're pushing the keyhole." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like something that you would do, you would say to like your spouse, where she's it like, "I'm great. doing it, I'm fixing it." No, it doesn't look like you're doing that. And she's like, "Oh, okay." And then as soon as she gets in, 
she complains again about something, right? Like she doesn't <laughs> just stop. Yeah. She's like, well, your instructions were terrible. That's not the way that it looked like you would say it. Like you, it's yeah. exactly what anybody would do. You'd complain again after for why it took you long to do that. So yeah. oh. I think I heard that was improv too. It's one of the reasons why I think it flowed so naturally and, and felt it like did. a little slice of life moment. Almost like he was trying to pop everybody. This. Right. Like he's trying to get mm. a laugh out of the crew there by saying it yeah. and just not even thinking that was going to get like left in. And then it was so good that they all said, we got to we got to stick with that. Um, and so Chris Pratt deserves like, you know, he deserves his flowers. I think he's he gets a lot of backlash like online, you know, from people who are like terminally online. But I think has proven uh, this year uh, incredibly well. Just like what a what a draw he is. And he delivers the goods. I've always liked him, you know, Parks and Recs to, you know, smaller parts in movies like Wanted, uh, which I thought was great. My wife liked him on um, some. He was in the OC. Back in the day. He was in oh, the OC. A, he was I didn't the, know about that one. He was the guy that was like when Seth, uh, when, when Summer goes to college, he's like the stonery, new age, like hippie that's like tying yeah. himself to trees and stuff. And it, it's funny to see him pop up in there and then even if you don't like the movies like he does a good job in all the jurassic world lost like those mm -hmm. movies like he he plays yeah. the main character like he feels like a main guy and what's nice about him is like he's a i think it has something to do with just like his look and his vibe overall like he feels like someone that is an everyman you know mm -hmm. like he chris hemsworth you know like you look at him sometimes and you're like i, I can't be that guy i can't be thor unrelatable you know? Like, yeah. exactly, exactly. He's got some, he's got like a Paul Rudd in him too, you know, um, I think right. that makes him, like, you look at him and you're like, yeah, the guy was a little chubby in, in Parks and Rec, you know, and he wasn't like a, a leading man, um, like, template. Mm -hmm. and But yeah, he pulls off the, he the leading man. I he think he, he, he can play a Navy SEAL, I think, Completely well, as he did that agree. in Zero Dark Thirty. Like, uh -huh. uh, and that's, that's, that range, I think, is so valuable for a leading man because that's like, He's got that vulnerability, you know, that he's got that um, that Bruce Willis in Die Hard kind of uh, uh, thing. Not not the exact template no, of that. No, it's that, it's, that vulnerable, so right. like, it's, and it's a human tough, being behind the tough guy. It's a and it's a really like it's a tough dance, you know, because mm -hmm. you you want to be able to be both. Like you said, you want to have some bravado, but it doesn't want to seem like you're forcing it. It wants to be like. You look at him and the things that he does in the movies and stuff, it all it's all like a natural like you naturally trust him, respect him, mm -hmm. like grow to love him and the characters that he portrays because of like who they are more than, oh, look, there's a big dude. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's very different. And so that's why you I think in in like action heroes that are like him are the are the are my favorite because yeah. you you connect with them before any of the action stuff comes in. So then you care uh, so much more about them living and dying and what happens, you know, um, yeah. versus just like, oh, John claude Van Damme's here. You know, that's cool. Like, cool movies and, like, Stallone movie, you know, like that. But, like, give me Stallone and Rocky versus <laughs> Stallone and other things because I'm going to feel a little bit more when he's in the ring if he's going to, you know, make it through. And, yeah. and uh, Speaking of Stallone, we didn't mention he, you know, he's back in as uh, the leader of the Ravagers in this, which I, I thought was great. And I, the one thing I thought was hilarious, if you 
you really got to make him say that monologue that he said. Like, he's got to go through all this verbiage that's, like, all this technical, like, space jargon where it's, like, poor Stallone. I was thinking, how many times did he have to go through this one? Like, I was wondering, like, that poor guy just having to get through that little monologue. Uh, But always great to see him pop back up as we head to another flashback. I think this was uh, our final one where we have Rocket going back into his cell and he as you said he had planted little pieces of machinery and little pieces of equipment in his cell in case he ever needed to escape or ever needed to find a way to get out and now he knows that him and his friends aren't going to be going to the new world they're going to be incinerated he heard the high evolutionary say to kill his friends but to keep rocket so they could study his brain rocket actually is able to create a key to help get them out of their cages. So he gets himself out. He goes and he opens the cage and he gets Lila out. And his friends are so excited that he's able to get them out. They're just steps away from freedom. Rocket's going to go fly a ship and take them off into space and live happily ever after where they can have fun together. And in the moment that Rocket and Lila are hugging, we hear a shot. And she gets shot right in the back. It actually kind of saves Rocket's life because it sh- it kills yeah. her. And this is what this is the moment that makes him snap because the Rocket that we know and that we've been introduced to as more of an adult, mm-hmm. he's got a chip on his shoulder. We didn't oh, really yes. know why, but we knew that this guy, this creature, has a massive chip on his shoulder. We understand now why this poor being was ripped from his home. He was experimented on as a child. And then the first family that he really had was gunned down in front of him, mm-hmm. in front of him. Wow. And it makes sense why Rocket would respond the way he did. He goes crazy on the high evolutionary's face. He's scratching him all up. He's clawing him up. And his poor friends are like in the background, even like Teefs is like, no, Rocket, please don't. Yeah. And, and and then as Rocket finishes kind of, you know, going at the uh, high evolutionary, he sees that his friends are all done. They're all dead. And he, he runs off. He's actually able to escape and and he's able to get free. He jumps in a, uh, a ship and he flies away. But man, the moment when he embraces and we again, we know they're not going to get free because we don't see yeah. these characters again. But in a weird sense of irony. Rocket does get to do what they all planned on doing. He does get to go with his new found family with the Guardians mm-hmm. into space and fly around and kind of fulfill their dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. They were just setting us up for heartbreak that whole <laughs> the whole time and uh, so well executed. Um, and it is poetic that, you know, we do know ultimately in the end that a Rocket does get his dream fulfilled. It's just not with the, you know, the friends that he had wanted initially. Um, I, I did feel a little bit like this, these deaths bore the weight of, um, bore the weight of like the consequences in this film. I felt like this was going to be more of a final act where we would see, you know, one or two of the guardians possibly not make it out of this story. Um, 
that's a great that's think, a great point. No, you're right. I don't think it, it was. I don't it, think it, it was maybe a it was kind of an easy way of maybe a little bit easier, a little safer, right? Because while this was still sad, they mm-hmm. didn't have to get rid of any of the big big characters that we've grown to love. Right, and and, and it's a little bit reductive. I'll, I'll say just to be fair for me to go. Oh, okay, because these characters didn't die there's no finality or there's no like real consequences that the only real consequences out there uh i i've been implying that the only real consequences are uh you know death life and death that's not true there's so many consequences out there in life uh that can be m- more profound than than life or death uh, in, in many ways so uh i i think james gunn delivered you know he delivered a final act for these characters in a lot of ways and he concluded their stories but Part of me felt like Disney want just wanted to do more with the characters, and maybe, and and, and there were a few times throughout the film where characters I thought maybe rightfully would have died, or and that they were they were going there with it, but then they pulled back from it at one point or another. So I think that let uh, like just added to the sense that they were kind of holding back on the stakes in this film, the mortal stakes for these characters, which I think does something overall to the the impact uh i think back to the movie serenity the adaptation of you know the movie firefly I brought that up earlier with nathan fillion uh i actually thought that this film aesthetically had a lot in common with um with firefly but one of the things that i think a lot of audiences and fans of that show got from the film uh and that made it more impactful was that some of the main characters didn't make it out uh and then that made their that character feel more important overall and uh the ending for that character felt um you know more more final what was a true ending because they're they're not gonna there's no more stories to tell for that character so uh, yeah i i do kind of wrestle with this uh and with my enjoyment of the film ultimately like i I, i've been saying i really did enjoy it and, and liked it a lot and i think that um james gunn was probably smart to to do this with these characters uh, and make an ultimately satisfying uh, and heart-wrenching film. Uh, but yeah, there was something about it that felt like maybe something was missing. Maybe one of the Guardians, Absolutely. I felt like maybe, maybe should have bought the bullet. Completely agree with you. I think one of them could have gone. They, they wanted to keep everybody around. As we get back to Counter-Earth, we see War Pig, who flies in to the uh, <laughs> to the ship and uh, attacks Gamora and Rocket? Warpig trying to get to get Rocket. Uh, then Adam finds Warpig and they go at it. He tears Warpig's <laughs> head off quickly. Um, Warpig Adam... voiced by Judy Greer, also uh, yes, Aunt Paul Rudd's wife and Ant Man. Yes, and War uh, Warpig is uh, is Gonzo. Adam wants the credit. The warlock wants the credit for finding Rocket. But we check back in at Counter Earth, and after just a few quick statements from Peter and from Groot, the High Evolutionary realizes that Counter Earth is not perfect. We actually see in in part of it where people are beating each other up. There's like drugs going on. Someone's shooting up in the back alley of something. Like any world, there's going to right. be lower levels in crime. And this kind of that kind of took me out of it, though, like add that to the list of the stuff I thought was kind of weird. Like, yeah, just the way they show that uh, as they're driving, I just something about it made it felt like just a little too not real on the surface, not real. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to costumes, 
like yeah. nowhere where we felt very real compared to some of these other places where we yeah. felt very real. So I uh, really agree on, on that point as he just says, oh, yeah, let's destroy it. So high evolutionary like flips the switch <laughs> and just starts to bomb counter Earth with everybody in it, which is really sad because we actually see like the family that just helped the Guardians just get blown up, like yeah. just destroyed. And, it, and then you stop and think. How many times has the high evolutionary done this in how many different places? Like, what's this dude's death count at? He's up there. Yeah. Like, every time he snaps snaps his fingers like this, an entire world that he's created is gone and everybody in it. And he doesn't even care. Like, he doesn't bat his eyes. And the last sort of sequence of the movie is, or a lot of the action is, as we're seeing this counter earth getting destroyed, getting blown up, Peter and Groot kind of fight off some of the high evolutionaries henchmen and then they jump out the window and <laughs> we, we see like all sorts of different chaos happening here. Um, so Mantis, Drax and Nebula are sort of together. Um, they end up on the high evolutionary ship, Peter and Groot, they get back to their own ship with rocket and gamora so they're all split up they're trying to get back to each other and then obviously to save rocket but they got to get off of this planet tk that's about to blow up so there's a lot happening here for them there's a lot happening here and it's uh, uh, ultimately it's an entertaining sequence because they're cutting back and forth and it's very exciting there's a lot of stuff happening uh you can't really stop too long to think about anything. And it's a good thing it's moving so fast because if, if, if you do stop to think about it, it, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I know. Um, this is a, this is a, a part of the, the film I didn't love. Me too. This um, part right here just felt like... Like, what are, like oh, they we got to do something. Yeah, they were doing everything just kind of like quickly. Even like all the time on... And I think it was because Counter-Earth was like, we're here... It's quick. It's blown up. Yeah. It felt just like what you're saying. It kind of felt really impersonal. Um, I, mm-hmm. There was just something missing to it that I, that didn't that I didn't connect with all that. The characters much. just kind of swap positions in in, yes. a, in a in a logical way. You're right. You're and, right. And like what you mentioned it when Peter and Groot just jump out of the window. Like, what was the plan there? <laughs> like that. I guess that's that's what they were planning to do all the all along. Or like Peter just figured that they could figure it out on the way down it just I know. something about that did not seem like a smart move but it was on the other hand kind of cool and and twisted the way they grab onto the guy who had their in, that info that they needed and he basically rides him down and uses him as a you know a protection uh dragging him along the ground it was really uh aggressive out there yeah. uh, aggressive and there's some grotesque, uh, like kind of violent things that James Gunn got in here. And he, I mean, he's a trauma guy. He, uh, that's that's his background, you know, go, going for it uh, in the indie world. Uh, so I thought it was pretty pretty interesting to see that in this Disney film. The yeah, yeah the battle kind of continues on as Peter and Gamora and Groot they go to get the pass key and they're able to save Rocket. They think. Doesn't seem like it's working, really. As we have a flat, now we have Rocket, not a flashback, but Rocket going into the afterlife. And he's in like a white area, 
And his friend Lila shows up with Teefs and Floor in the back. And he said he's ready to go with them. They're going to go fly around together like they always talked about. But Lila stops him. She says, you will come with us, but you still have a purpose. They have a little nose nuzzle kiss. And then Rocket comes right back into his body. And he, the uh, the Guardians are so happy to have their friend back. Nebula hears over the communications that Rocket is okay. And she's actually gets emotional, which we don't see often from Nebula. So that's the moment where Rocket is back now. And I mean, he's not really a part of a lot of the movie in 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 current time because he's going through a lot of his flashbacks here. But mm-hmm. it's great to have our buddy Rocket back and just to see how much he means to all of the crew. And I think what they did mm-hmm. with Gamora was kind of interesting too. Gamora was able to learn about the Guardians based on how much they care about Rocket and how much he means to them. Like that that yeah. she she mentioned it like the fact that they're doing all this for like this animal must be mm-hmm. really really important. And I think that that helped her not remember but just understand the people she was working with, respect them and and you know kind of under like get that this is a good group of people that that really are the good guys. Yeah, and we've we've actually talked about that, you know, in previous episodes uh, discussing other shows uh, where, you know, as an audience member, when you see characters caring for or about another character, that's like a trigger that causes the audience to invest in in that character and get behind that character. It's just something uh, innate about us, I think, uh, as people, you know, we are built to support each other. And, you know, when we see that, you know, in action, we're, we want to support the people who are supporting. And it just, it, it grows from there. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing about, about human nature and, and storytelling. And, the, and it's cool that we get to see that happening on screen amongst the characters as well. Now, the high evolutionary had upped his game a little bit. He wasn't experimenting on just animals anymore. He had humans. And we saw that with Adam Warlock, um, children that he was experimenting on. In fact, Nebula and Drax and Mantis actually find cages with hundreds and hundreds of kids in them, scared, all not sure what's going to happen. And the one who makes them feel better is Drax. Uh, Drax actually speaks their language. But more than that, Drax was a father. And what we know about Drax was that his family was taken from him. And you see that he's a big silly guy and he just has Mm -hmm. so much fun playing with the kids making faces doing goofy things in nebula even tells him not long after this you are not drax the destroyer you are drax the dad you were meant to be a dad and he he ends up being the one to, to stay and take care of a lot of these kids but in in this moment nebula changes her entire feelings about drax you can see it he yeah. what he does for these kids and how he's able to help them and how he's able to help the situation by just getting the kids to calm down uh, overall. Uh, this was mm-hmm. this was a, a nice, a really sweet moment for for Drax, too. And, you know, I keep watching him always thinking like this was Batista. You know, he's done a really yeah. good job here. Like this was a wrestler. Yes. And, and when, when he was filming the first Guardians of the Galaxy, 
WWE, he was done wrestling at that point, and WWE didn't know what it was. And they did, he had said something along the lines of, hey, you know, this movie's going to be kind of big if you want to promote it a little bit. And they mm-hmm. promote everything, like any of their wrestlers, if they go on like a C-list reality show, they will yeah. act like it's the biggest deal in the world. And they weren't promoting this at all. Like they didn't think it was going to be a big deal. Somebody said that Vince or someone said like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't want to put. And it was great. It was such a big (laughs) FU right afterwards that this movie was huge and that it it basically sparked the career of Batista, who is a massive star now and has been in all these movies since. Yeah. And I heard somebody mention recently about, you know, why is The Rock seemingly not drawing in the way he, he has in recent years? And there's a lot of reasons, I think, for that. But one of them is just the growing prominence of, you know, of Batista, uh, right. of, of uh, Cena. John Cena, like the, yep. the kind of, you know, taking uh, some of his spots there and being a little bit more relatable and doing a little bit more of acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because The Rock, whereas, which, which is really funny with The mm-hmm. Rock, because when The Rock was a wrestler, The Rock was a wrestler who lost a lot and who was a good seller, which means right. he was always letting other guys beat him up and then he would come back at the end, but he was always okay with let, with getting beat up for the majority of matches. In his Not movies- the case in the films, yeah. No, he wants to always be the tough guy. It's and in his contract. It is, fact. like, he always wants to be, like, he can't ever get beat in a fight or this or that, mm-hmm. and you you start to feel it. Right. You start to sense it. Things are the same over and over and over again. And like you said, John Cena is not that way. Batista is not that way. They will be self-deprecating. They will play silly characters that are on the bottom coming up like they. um, It's like the Chris Pratt thing we were talking about, how how Chris Pratt straddles. hundred percent. That's a great. And that's what audiences are kind of demanding now, because that one note, you know, God, perfect, you know, thing is not. That's not relatable, but the guy who fumbles and stumbles and stands up and then does something really cool, you know, or does the right thing or, you know, does something that's, you know, noteworthy, that's a cool story. That's, that's more relatable. You know, we, we strive to do great things in our lives and we also stumble throughout our journeys. And like, that's what we want to see on screen. We want to see these imperfect heroes rising to the occasion. They even have to call in Craglin to help them out, which is, which is cool. So he comes and uh, he gets to uh, pilot the ship to come in and save them. Craglin and Cosmo bring nowhere mm-hmm. over to the ship where the guardians are on. And they have to start. This reminded me of like Noah's Ark. They have to start right. getting everybody on from one ship to the next. So first it's all these kids that are running over and leaping. Then they got to get these animals that are all like running over and leaping. Um, Funny, funny visuals here. We actually, yeah. we actually meet a couple abelisks, TK. These mm-hmm. huge beasts, crazy-looking creatures that are. What kind of a what kind of a creature would you say they they most looked like? Those things, um, like a jellyfish octopus. Thing, there you go. Like blob, yeah, yeah, something. Blob. Fit, fit, like <laughs> a, the I was thinking the blob, like the movie, yeah. like if like a living version of the like you you got that sort of here. They're crazy evil, but Mantis is able to use her touch and connect with them and actually kind of direct them and control them. So what looked like a scary moment for Nebula, for Mantis, and for Drax, they're able to get out of that. 
like always with our heroes, we kind of know they're going to get their way out of these compromising mm-hmm. situations that they're in. But uh, we had a cool moment where Craglin sees a, a vision of Yondu. He remembers what Yondu said about using his heart in order to help fly yeah. the arrow. And uh, actually, Craglin uses the arrow to destroy a bunch of the high evolutionaries drones. That was one of my favorite things, like the drones, mm-hmm. the hench, like the the animals that he has created to be like his security. These creepy, mm-hmm. creepy animals and like war pig that um, yeah. that high evolutionary had. He sends them all out. And these are all like those Toy Story toys of Sid that are just mm-hmm. coming out of nowhere, trying to fight them and trying to to like save the high evolutionary. I kind of like the look and the feel of them as as bad guys. Yeah, all the production design here is really on point. Uh, everything is 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 going full tilt, and uh, I I love that the um, those creatures that we were talking about. Uh, forgive me, I forgot the name. Uh, they 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 uh, feast. They eat batteries. There's that little detail there. Abelisks. Uh, Abelisks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like that's that little detail there, and then that they follow end up following them around, and now that they're they're part of the story now, like moving forward. Like I could see um, Mantis, you know wielding them in battle mm-hmm. in some crazy way like down the line uh and that, that like everything's kind of like coming together in, in these sequences and yep. we're finally getting to see you know the team back together uh, ultimately they're at this point at least they're still divided in two but for the most part they're back together and they're getting to that point they're coalescing to that point where we get that amazing hallway scene which is like the high point i think of, of that the is, film it is so um, good i mean it is that sequence when they're all in the room fighting at the same time for like the length of the song yes you know yeah it is it, incredible unbelievable and it's just like a full coming together of the three movies of like all these characters and the journeys they've been on and um so they reunite and he together adam is with them now and they go after the uh, high evolutionary's army, and this is where they have that scene where they're battling them and going at it, and everyone's using their powers, their tools, their strengths to do everything yeah. they can. And it's like it's cool because together. It's, it's contained, right? Like yeah. we're seeing it all happening in, in this big, massive hallway, and uh, like it's just, it's one of those things that it gives you goosebumps thinking about, just yeah. thinking about how cool it is. To, to it's see. almost a trope at this point. A, a hallway, a hallway yeah. fight scene like Daredevil. We got it. We got some great ones um, when, like, not just the initial Netflix series, but when they brought Daredevil into uh, oh, yeah. She-Hulk, they had a they great do. hallway scene. They, 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 they undermine the expectations for that too, uh, with what they had, you know, Jen do in that sequence. But this was just a like a straight on one shot. They 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 cheated obviously, but it, it feels like a one shot. Uh, sequence where like it's just money after money after money. You're just hearing cha-ching, cha-ching the whole way through because like yeah. there's just images getting burned into your brain, seared in, and it's like uh, that's what you come for. You came for that, and they delivered. And uh, I thought that uh, that if the whole movie kind of boiled down to that scene, I would have gone, well, it was it was worthwhile because yeah, we, we say, got that. That scene <laughs> was that. You're right. That was the one where. Gosh, like that's the one you get the clips of. That's the one that they can play in in the trailers or in the you know the 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 video teasers for this. It's just 
so so good. And our our group, they decide like they got they're gonna go take out the high evolutionary now, and they split off in a few different ways. But Rocket goes and finds the animals, and he's the one that actually lets all the animals out. He finds the baby raccoons, and he starts yeah. to free them all. The high evolutionary finds Rocket, and they have a standoff. He's, he calls him a failed experiment, and Rocket says, uh, no, I'm, I'm not. We, we then get the Guardians showing up to support Rocket here. When Rocket needs it, when it looks like the high evolutionary is going to get the better of him, they are there for their friend, and everybody takes out the high evolutionary. Nebula pulls his face off, mm-hmm. and we see that his face is just a skin mask over the disfigured face that he has that rocket clawed and scratched and scraped. He just puts on a little skin mask, which is yeah. uh, kind of creepy. Um, and, you know, Adam helps out quite a bit here. He he has his full baby face turn. He's a good guy now. And Rocket decides not to kill the high evolutionary. He doesn't want to do it. But he does leave him to die as the ship begins to explode. All the other animals are free. Cosmo, cool Cosmo, using the powers to make sure the ships are as close to each other as possible. So that yeah. way all of the animals can can get into nowhere. So now on nowhere, on the big ship, we're flying around. They have a bunch of kids displaced. Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of animals that were displaced, yeah. that were being experimented on. And Peter is one of the last trying to make it off of the ship of the high evolutionary back to nowhere. And he can't, it's too far away. And he just gets kind of stuck floating through space. What'd you think of it? Look mm. what the look was when our, our, and we saw this with, um, with Mantis, with Drax and with Nebula a little earlier when they got up into space and sort of out of the atmosphere, their faces started to almost freeze and kind of pop. It was a, yeah. a different look to it. What'd you think of that? I thought for sure Quill was dead when his face ex- like exploded. Basically, <laughs> like, this was the moment, right? And I... just figured, yeah. I mean, and this is the finale of the series. He, it was, uh, it was sad and um, like I don't know if it's ironic is the right word, but he goes back for for his Zune. You know, that was kind of the thing that that made him, you know, miss. Late. miss yeah, the, the reason why he didn't make it because he went he went to go back and pick up his his music. You know, the yeah. the memories that he had. Uh, and I, I like this moment. Ultimately, this is something that was a callback, right? They've done it in every Guardians movie. I think yep. somebody either dies or almost dies. Yanju, you know, sacrificed himself in the last one. Uh, in the first one, I believe Peter uh, has this happen to him in some capacity. I'm forgetting the exact details on it, but it's it's a callback to those moments. Uh, and so I thought they were going to, you know, finally deliver on, you know, that I guess they did deliver on it by killing Yandu earlier, but but still, I thought that one of these characters was going to die, and it felt a little bit like a cheat uh, at this point when when he survived. Um, I was glad though, you know. Fast forward a little bit to the end of the of the film, the post credit sequence, and we we do see a thing come up on screen that says, you know, the legendary Star Lord will return, and that back. made me smile. That yeah, made me smile. So, so it's like you understand I why. See more. But yeah, because we yeah. we want if they if they get more of him coming, that's good. But you're right. I think as far as impact wise, it would have mm-hmm. been way more impactful him to go right here 
at the end. Yeah. And then you have a new team, and it, you know that's why you have Rocket sort of taking the lead uh, of the team. But mm-hmm. alas, Adam flies out and saves him. Yeah. So and oh, and that's and it looks exactly like um, that painting. Uh, I believe it's oh, oh shoot, yes. I forget the name of it. We got Is it Da Vinci's? I forget who did it. Was it Michelangelo? I forget Michelangelo's who did this painting. The, uh, David. Michelangelo's David. I think. Uh, no, I think that's the statue. Um, uh, this is. I think it's Adam. I think it's of Adam. I want to say. Adam. But yeah, is it Adam? And <laughs> yes, so, it's Adam. We're so uncultured. Uh, Mike, <laughs> I was gonna say. So it's this is the creation of Adam. Creation of Adam. Yes, that's yeah. the one. Uh, yeah. And who is it? Was, was it Da Vinci? Michael? I don't know. It was Michelangelo. One of the <laughs> yeah, Michelangelo. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's the it's the one that we've all seen before, where you have a god being depicted as the guy with the white beard, and he's reaching out, and his finger is touching Adam, who's naked, yeah. and you know the first man. So this was yeah, they. <laughs> it's a nice moment. A little homage to fun. that. <laughs> it was pretty funny. It really was pretty funny. But uh, yeah, Adam. There we go. It makes sense, right? Adam makes the most yeah. sense. Duh, duh. <laughs> if we thought about it for if we thought about it for a second, we're like, oh yeah, the character's name Adam, Adam Warlock. Of Adam. Oh, oh yeah. on the nose. Oh yeah. Sometimes Tim and I are recording early in the morning here, folks, and it takes us a little <laughs> bit. And keep in mind, there's there's been a little bit of marijuana through the years. That's probably in the in the brain somewhere. Just a tad. Just a, just a tad. Once or two for me. One or two for me here. We're in California. It's legal, you know. So, anyways, TK, we're back on nowhere. And the Guardians all come together one more time. And Gamora says goodbye. She goes off and works with the ra- uh, Ravagers. But there is a good, a nice moment when you could see her really feel mm-hmm. the love between this group of people. In, in, in a way where, it, where you could sense for a second where it was almost like a longing that she had. Like she was like, oh, mm-hmm. this, like I want to be, this is my family. But then we actually see her go back to the Ravagers and they embrace her like family. Yeah. So that is where she belongs now. Yeah. For now. For now. Yeah. For now. We never know. We never know. But we never know. But uh, uh, I do think uh, I heard that she doesn't want to play the character anymore. You never know, though, with the with with actors that that could always be a negotiating tactic to try to get an extra five sure. mil on that contract. Um, so we don't we don't really know. Uh, she might be tied up with more Avatar stuff for, for years to come and maybe just doesn't want to be in another big Disney machine uh, film from here on out. So maybe that this is truly her swan song. Peter decides that he's going to go back to Earth. He's going to try to find out about his family, about his grandpa and see if he's still around. And our crew all decides they need to go their separate ways. Mantis wants to go figure herself out. And she tells Drax that he can't come with her they have to figure them they have to go their own ways but nebula she decides that she's going to stay take care of everyone and everything and nowhere and now drax has become like the father of hundreds of kids that are displaced he has a real purpose now to raise these children and to be a role model for all of them and now it's sort of elevated craglin and we've elevated Cosmo a little bit. We know Adam can be in the mix here with them. So we have the new semblance of a team mm-hmm. coming together, a new group of guardians. I thought everybody sort of saying bye at the end was did feel like a real send-off moment. And yeah. uh, Peter tells Rocket, you know, he's going to be the next leader. And he uh, he heads back down to Earth. So we we get that final song 
where Rocket give uh, Peter gives Rocket his Zune, mm-hmm. and so now he has music from all these different decades, and he starts to play. The dog days are over, and yep. it's Florence and the Machine. Yeah, and uh, I I think I read that Florence and the Machine is like super excited, happy with how they've used the songs, and just thinks it's like perfect to be like a perfect yeah. place for their song. It was a cr- like a really cool moment at the end. We have a couple of credit scenes to talk about, but what did you think about all of them saying goodbye and the, the dog days are over? Uh, great choice of a song. Love it. I love that it was, you know, Florence and the machine. There's a lot of like elements of, you know, men and the machine in this. There's also a song from uh, Flaming Lips off their album, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Uh, do you realize that I thought was really well placed earlier that um, Peter's listening to? But back to this scene, uh, they're they're ending on a, a fun, uplifting dance song, which is also a great callback and through line for the whole series. You know, uh, the the first film ended with a kind of a dance battle, uh, and then you get Baby Groot dancing uh, after the credits, and so it's just been a, a major part of the series and, and the. Um, fabric of this series and so it was a joy to end on that note uh, and I thought it was it, it was just really well done um, and I like that all the characters really had a good arc and something to do throughout the film and, right and that, that was something I, I, Even I had heard I had heard mm-hmm. I can't remember where but and, and I really thought about it like th- that is tough to do because think about Ant-Man for example we, we keep mm-hmm. doing this and we're going to talk about this movie in, in one of the next yeah. few weeks but but it felt like what was like, the art? Well, like Wasp, right? Like she's like not even in the movie for a lot of it. And then she's like <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. here and there. It's like so uneven for a lot of the main characters. It was in like this, Michelle Pfeiffer's movie. <laughs> it was oh, weird. I know, you're right. It yeah. was like the the balance of it was was very off. And they did a great job here with everybody mm-hmm. feeling like they got their their moments and what they needed, even someone like Craglin, right? Yeah. Who, yeah. I loved way back in Gilmore Girls. Dude, he's funny huh. in Gilmore Girls. He plays Kirk, who's like a really weird yeah. dude like in the town who like does all these different jobs and is very eccentric. Yeah. But um, Sean Gunn, out. right? Sean Gunn yeah. plays him, and he's also the um, the actor who does the motion capture, performance capture for uh, Rocket. For Rocket. Yeah. So he's really a big part of what brought that character to life, and it's a beloved character. Really great way to finish up this trilogy again it's not perfect but these three movies are so entertaining and when you talk about trilogies like they're not if if the the second one is your least favorite and it's not a bad movie at all like that's not a bad trilogy for the three of them and you know what the mcu has some pretty good trilogies now when you think about the the captain america ones really good at number one i think i think cap is number one as far as trilogies um, are concerned. Me too, me too, as far as the quality. Now, yeah. if you're thinking of importance and stuff, you may have to put Iron Man up there because of how big yeah. a deal number one was, even though two and three aren't yeah. maybe as good of movies. Um, right, as and some I, of the I like three quite a bit, actually. Me too, oh, three but, is but, really but, good. Like, I, I like three too quite a bit too, more than more than others. two is hit, hit or miss, and I like two more than some, but uh, I really like the Mickey Rourke stuff in two, and then I feel like the, and the Spider stuff works. Uh, oh, the spider, that's a really solid one too. Yeah. Uh, I would still rank this I, maybe ahead of Spidey. I'm not, I'm I not think, sure. I think they're, they're right behind, they would be behind the captain, the caps for me. Yeah. It would be yeah. the cap caps first and then Spidey's and guardians 
uh, would be mm-hmm. in the second and third, probably. Then mm-hmm. we go to I, like Iron Man's right there. And then I think at the end, it would probably be Ant-Man. Yeah. Right? For the and it, that's just, just, yeah. And that's trilogies too. That's so only like, trilogies. You could, you could say yeah. like maybe Iron Man might be the best overall film. I'm not, I'm not sure. But yeah. it might be Guardians of the Galaxy. Actually, after rewatching that, I, I got to say it's, it's, it's so good. It's number one is so good. Guardians it's one really good for me. Like <laughs> my my favorite of all of the movies that would personally be my favorite towards the top of the MCU's right now. Guardians mm-hmm. one. Um, I mean Iron Man one because of the importance of it. A uh, Winter yeah. Soldier really really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it, those those are for sure up there. And like we said. Like, for some of them, maybe one of the movies is stronger than the trilogy, but yeah. those are some of my my kind of personal favorites that are up there. And and um, Infinity War, you know, is is amazing, incredible. Yeah, you could you could argue that the Avengers uh, might be uh, the best trilogy, even though Infinity yes. War and Endgame with the you're right two movies. That's a great that's a great point. You're right. So yeah, really cool. Let's talk about the the couple of uh, credit scenes. First up, sure. we have the mid credit scenes. Rocket and Groot. They're the new leaders of the team now. Craglin, Cosmo, Adam, and Blurp. And there's one uh, orphan child that they're playing with. And a bunch of enemies kind of storming out them. And we see Rocket leading the team into battle. So just kind of teasing a new adventure coming up with a a new team of Guardians. Yeah, and a a good lineup. I got to say, I'm interested to see how Adam Warlock develops, you know, when he's not a baby version of himself. Uh, I think that character has a lot to do. He's like kind of an OP character, super powerful, um, kind of godlike uh, in the comics. So I'd I'd be interested to see how they use him when he's at full power. Um, Also love that Cosmo is part of the team. Uh, I thought that the arc with Cosmo and Kraglin uh, the whole good it's a good dog. dog. Uh, is, That's a good <laughs> dog right there, TK. Cosmo is a great dog, uh, and that was a great uh, choice to put into the script. Uh, great idea. It really worked. It, it was something that felt super organic that was woven throughout the whole film. They planted the seed for that super early on uh, with, with that little conflict between the two of them, and then they paid it off in the big battle uh, in, in a way that just was so satisfying the whole audience erupted when he finally told Cosmo he's a good dog and then and then that wasn't it you know you mentioned it Cosmo's literally holding the the ships together to allow for you know this parting of the Red Sea moment of uh uh of of them leading the 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 children and you know into nowhere uh to safety um but uh yeah it was like the whole team again got so much to do and then now we're left with this uh, great blueprint for how to move forward. And I think uh, uh, Kevin Feige would be uh, smart to, you know, take take this blueprint and, and run with it rather than try to reach retread, you know, old, uh, you know, the old stories and bring back these o- older characters. I know they did tease at the end again. Legendary Star Lord will return. But uh, I, I kind of hope that that's in a solo film and that the Guardians continue. I completely at, agree. No, it, should be. it should be. Yeah. It shouldn't be back with the Guardians. I don't want I don't want that. I want him on his own now. You're right. It, yeah. In a different movie, in a different film or with a different group of people. But they don't they I think their story was told and it felt pretty good about how they finished it. Do we see him at some point again? 
cross paths with Rocket way down the line, maybe, but I don't yeah, think you even need you, it. Great, you know what I mean? But you don't mm-hmm. need to lean on that no. right right back again. And that was one of the issues that I had with, well, spoiler alert, you and I uh, talked about um, the Mandalorian, the Mandalorian, right? Dude, with the reuniting yes. of the of Baby Yoda and Mando, in that, yeah. right? Like you you know it's going to be such a big moment. We're going to get there at some point, but you don't have to lean on it right away exactly. all the time. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel really good about about where we finish up because we see Peter. Mm-hmm. He makes it down to Earth and he he knocks on a door and it's his grandpa's and the uh, the woman wait, who wait, answers. How's, how's grandpa still alive, though? He's way over 50. I was going to say, right? He, from what Peter knows, people on Earth <laughs> die around 50. And that was a yeah. great inside joke earlier where a mantis said, so you're going to die? said, I'm not <laughs> yeah. 50. And, and Drax uh, is like, yeah, he's, he's going to, he's like, he just kind of silently nods in the background. Like, he, it's it, not a surprise to him. Like, yeah, of course, he's going to die soon. You didn't know that? <laughs> so good. So good stuff. And uh, yeah, Peter and, and Grandpa embrace, have a hug. I couldn't help. I know it's so funny in like a, we're watching this movie with like talking dogs and space stuff. And I, would, I couldn't really help think about what that moment would be like when I, oh, when yeah. I saw it, right? Like, like for a second, I got real again. It's like, could you imagine yeah. if a kid is gone for 40 years, 30, 40 years like this? Yeah. And then you come back and like, what is that like? Like, where have you been? What's going on? What happened? Like, just what? Like, I couldn't even imagine, yeah. you know? And I think because I be, we are dads now, I'm becoming a little more of a softie with things like this. Oh, TK, yeah. like I think about yeah. it more from like a father standpoint or like, could you imagine if your son was gone for that long or, you know, and then just comes Ooh. back. Well, and imagine it's like, you, lose, you lose your child and you have a grandchild there that gets lost in the same day. In the same day. I mean, the same oh, moment. I would wreck you. I would wreck well, and, you. And Peter even said in this movie at one point, that his grandpa like pushed him out the door or something like he was he didn't right. even really remember what happened he accurately wrong. his grandpa yeah. was never like mean to him and really like that and like you said his grandpa had just lost his daughter like yeah. the same day like what was he going through at that same point and mantis just, even chimed in in that moment too to kind of like correct uh peter when when he when he said that like he was probably he, he she stepped in to say no, he was probably just trying to protect you um, yeah. because she's always you know, she, coming from an, an empathetic you know, place. And I'm glad you mentioned that because she was really the catalyst in getting Peter to go back to Earth and right. to look back into his past. Because she had been talking about how he never even looked anyone up. He never went back there. He was so scared that he didn't even see if he had any family around. And And I think that stuck with him. And where he is mentally with Gamora and him, him getting a little closure with that situation mm-hmm. and now feeling like, hey, you know, Rocket does a good job here. Like he can lead this group. Everybody's in good hands. Nebula's, you know, he sort of felt like I, de- I need to go do this right now. This yeah. is my time. And I'm, I'm glad he did. And we see the final scene, the post credit scene, him and his grandpa are having breakfast together. Yeah. They're talking about, he's like, wait. So this, this guy's like a, a grown adult and I got to go mow his lawn. You know, he's saying <laughs> something like that. It was really funny. And uh, the last I love thing that s- what, what I love about that, you, you just kind of mentioned like, how what would that be like? You know, you reunited after all this time. It would be this like profound, intense, over the top kind of 
scenario like it'd be surreal and the mundane and, then, and, then, and the next moment it's so it's it's cereal and lawn mowing the lawn yep, you know it, right. it just it's that's life. that's family that's life yeah it it's, just it's, moves it's, it keeps moving you know what i mean yeah. like and in the news cycle everything happens so quickly that like 20 minutes later something new and big just happened yeah. and it didn't you don't even remember like i'm so glad you because when you were thinking about it, it's like they're just sitting there eating cereal but that's yeah. why because it was such a huge deal and then it's like oh Right back to normal life. This is, you know, this is what it is now for Peter. Yeah. And you'll notice uh, uh, he's eating Magic Spoon cereal, which is that cereal that they sell like on Instagram that is made with like, I don't know, like monk fruit or it's, there's no sugar in it, supposedly, <laughs> like like a carb. So I just thought that was uh, interesting. I, I'm sure it was product placement, but I, I kind of suspect it was like, you know, Chris Pratt. If he's going to be eating cereal in the scene these days, like it's, they, there can't be any carbs in that cereal. So that was probably in the rider. The final line that we see on the screen, the legendary Star-Lord will return. Not, you know, we had some uh, some gripes, some things in the middle of the movie, some stuff with Counter-Earth mm-hmm. that could have been mm-hmm. done better that maybe didn't feel quite as, uh, as intimate as a lot of the other movie. Mm-hmm. But I think from the very beginning, they hit you right over the head with, yeah. with the baby raccoons. And then every time, like any time where you would, you would, want to get away from feeling something they give you another flashback they give you another Mm -hmm. flashback to make you really feel they they do a good job with all of our favorite characters and all of our friends here making sure everybody feels like they have something to do they have a little bit of a purpose and i feel like it has a pretty good way of putting a bow on everything i like where we leave our characters i agree with you in that it could have been more impactful if if one if we end up losing one or two of these characters that we've been with. I, I think that would have maybe meant a little bit more. But mm-hmm. if we're talking the difference between like a B plus and an A minus or something like that, because that's sort of where I am, right? Little things to where um, I, I still felt really good about yeah. this movie, the end of the this crew, the end of the trilogy, and very excited to see Rocket, Craglin. Uh, Cosmo, the new team, very excited to see where Peter shows up and a lot more excited to talk about this movie with UTK than the next movie that we're going to talk about. Uh, sure, and, yeah. And- <laughs> yeah, well, I, I started rewatching it on uh, Disney, Disney Plus, uh, Ant-Man, and some of it uh, it's, I, again, I it's not a little bit better. So I was going to say, we're, we're making it, it's not, I don't think it's like the worst movie you've ever seen or anything. We just have a level that we, like a floor that we expect for yeah. a lot of these movies and it the the first two ant-mans were very good they were really yeah, especially good especially the, the first one uh grounded and uh I thought visual fun. visually well, well done uh this film a big aspect that i didn't like was the production design and the the, the visuals um star contrast to uh guardians this film has really strong honestly you know, production we, design it's it's the same thing that we now pointed out two or three different times, right? The heart mm-hmm. wasn't there in that mm-hmm. movie nearly as much in Ant Man. The heart isn't there, and with a guy right. like Paul Rudd, that's all of his characters are. He's he always plays a guy with heart that you like, love, or you like, or you, like you really you believe him. And I don't know yeah. everything about the. It just felt like disingenuous, and we'll get into it, and we'll have some positives mm-hmm. to talk and some negatives, but. Our next yeah. journey will be Ant-Man <laughs> and the Wasp, Quantumania, and then we're not far away from Secret Invasion. 
And uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about the, the pace. You know, there was at one point where uh, too there was much so going. much in the pi- pipeline. And we were excited about that. But ultimately, they just couldn't sustain it. And they've admitted as much. We've talked about this a little bit. But they're backing off a little bit on the, the IP. They're not putting out at the same pace as they have. And it, it was just overwhelming to audiences and I think to their creators where they weren't able to keep up the same level of quality control. They weren't able to put the, the time needed into these projects to refine them. Uh, that was exacerbated by the pandemic and all the restrictions around that and having to stick to schedules that were made pre-pandemic. Uh, but now we're resetting here. There's a new president, uh, our new CEO at, at Disney, Bob Iger's back. Uh, you know, he was maybe some of the reason why things went bad in the, in the first place, but uh, he's, you know, dead set on uh, correcting that. And hopefully, um, you know, him in conjunction with Kevin Feige and the creative teams, will they'll be able to bring something new, refreshing to the table. I did see an interview just recently with Kevin Feige sitting down with John Favreau. I don't know what's going on there behind the scenes. I would love to see. John Favreau back in the mix at Marvel in some capacity. I would love to see some legacy classic Marvel characters, um, some of the big A-list names that that uh, you know that were from Phase One through Three uh, back in the mix. Not all of them, not the same iterations necessarily. Maybe multiverse stuff, but we're right on the edge, I think, of some big, big changes. New characters being introduced, maybe even a reset surrounding you know either Secret Wars, Secret Invasion. Uh, who knows, but I'm really excited about what they have uh, in store. I'm excited they're shooting Deadpool and Wolverine right now for Deadpool 3. Um, how the writer strike will affect that, who knows. I, from what I understand, though, they're not able to improvise on set, so that might be uh, a detriment to the film with how they how they make those those movies. That said, really excited for everything Can you imagine uh, that? coming nope. around the corner. Wait, wait, we got to change that line. <laughs> that line's not correct. You said one yeah. word. Right, you know what I mean? Like, you imagine yeah. the after, oh nope, can't say that. That was improvised. That line wasn't exactly what was written. Like, that would be it's a miserable way to make a movie or a show. Yeah, it's like, tough. It's tough. <laughs> uh, we do have also uh, the Marvels. The trailers have been out for that. Um, they were actually out yeah. in, uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, which will be fun. We'll get to see Kamala Khan with Carol Danvers and Monica Rambo. All, uh, all getting together, and uh, I did like to see just some some clips of Kamala's family in there, which we really liked. So that mm-hmm. that'll be fun um, to to get a chance to get them. And then one thing that I'm I'm excited about too, I just recently rewatched was uh, Into the Spider Verse. We've got Across the Spider Verse, right? Big, I this, got my tickets already. Yeah, yep. man. That if you are someone that don't that doesn't watch some animation stuff because for whatever reason you you can't get into it as much, <laughs> please check out across uh into the spider-verse it is yeah. the best spider-man movie that you will see it's so good and yeah it, it was like the like a perfect lead into uh no way home yeah year. yeah you know it, it was a good like teaser to get to where we were going to get to so uh, i'm excited for that lots of fun stuff coming up and tim kelly will be here with us every time there's a new release in the world of marvel mcu and even recently i've been taking advantage of him and we had star wars stuff too he was pulling double yes, duty sir. for a while okay <laughs> buddy thank you so much i know you got some friends in town thank have you. a great day uh, and a nice memorial day weekend and i hope you and uh, and your wife and your son have a beautiful sunday and i'll talk to you again real soon thanks same to you take care 
Make sure to give Tim a follow. Tim is not funny. Check him out on Twitter and on Instagram and all of the great stuff with his music project, uh, Ice Cream Fire. So, uh, TK, my friend, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Tim for helping us out. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. We just finished up with that one. So that'll be on the, the next episode of That's What G Said. We liked Guardians better. But I think on the rewatch, we were a little bit more forgiving to Ant-Man than we may have been initially. So um, we had him a little bit out of order just because it was easier for us to, with the timing, the way the schedule was. I was actually kind of sick a lot when Ant-Man was out and I couldn't get to the theaters repeatedly. So now we've been able to watch it a few times since it's on Disney Plus and we'll have Ant-Man for you coming soon. We'll finish up with the old wrestling rewatch with Andrew Champagne. Before we get there, let's talk about one more sponsor, SarahCandles.com. If you're someone who likes to burn candles or if you know someone who does, maybe you're looking for a gift to get one of your friends, your family members, not exactly sure, get a couple candles and let them know these are not just normal candles. They are better for you. They are non-toxic no carcinogens, no pollutants. They are soy wax. And with the soy wax, they actually burn a little bit longer. So you'll save money, not have to buy them as often. And you won't be breathing in those toxins, your kids, your animals, all your friends. You don't want them breathing in really bad stuff. Way to freshen up the house, different seasons, different moods. SarahCandles.com, C-E-R-A Candles.com. Use the promo code G-I-N-O. It'll get you 10% off your purchase. Time for the old wrestling rewatch. NXT, Philadelphia 2018. Andrew Champagne joins to talk about one of the best shows ever in the main event. Johnny Gargano versus Andrade Cien Almas. We have Aleister Black versus Adam Cole in an unbelievable match right before that. So those two really carry the show. The rest of it's solid, but it's a show that you'll remember the final two matches for. Andrew joins for the old wrestling rewatch. Oh, yeah. Oh, wrestling rewatch with Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali. <laughs> we are back on the old wrestling rewatch. It's been a little while based on schedules. We're right around the, uh, the Triple Crown races. It's been NBA playoff time. And now as uh, things in the, uh, the sports world start to slow down a little bit, we want to uh, dive back into one of our favorite segments. Andrew Champagne joins me real quick. Before we get too far into the show, I want to send a, a big shout out to our, our friend DZ. Some thoughts and prayers to him. He's not with Amen. us. Amen. He had a big loss in the family. Um, so we love you, brother. Hope you're doing well. And uh, whenever you get a chance, we'd love to have you back talking some wrestling with us soon. But he's got a lot of uh, really important things to take care of right now. So never easy to make a transition from talking about serious real world stuff back into uh, wrestling. But on uh, this episode, AC, we're going to talk about NXT. We're going to talk about a show that was what only five years ago. Five yeah, years five, ago. Five and a half years, yeah. And it feels, when you look at the roster, it's so strange because this particular time period of NXT, we're going to talk about NXT 2018 Philadelphia, TakeOver Philadelphia, we have a lot of the wrestlers in the era right before this who are still on the main roster and doing really well. Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, Finn Balor, Nakamura, all actually recently doing really well. Drew McIntyre someone who's had a very nice run uh, on the main roster. He's been, he was kind of a little different though. Cause he was in WWE before and, and has come back on the women's side. So many of the females, I mean, honestly, when you think about all of them that are really successful, they've all come through NXT. 
But for some particular reason, this group, and I think maybe it's because of the opening of AEW, the way this class was, just the timing of everything, there are not very many folks from this card that are still around only five years later. Now, we're going to illustrate this a couple times during this show, but in case you think we're just blowing smoke, here is the official stat. Of the 12 active wrestlers that are involved in matches on this show, I'm not talking about managers or anyone who interferes, people that are involved in the matches listed on the card. There's 12 of them. 10 of them are no longer with the WWE. Within five now, years. Within there's a variety years. of Yeah. There's a variety of situations that we'll go into as to why there are some where you can understand what went on. And there's some where you look at someone and you go, how did they miss? And this honestly. And, and why? And yeah. like, why did they miss sometimes? Right. Because sometimes it's a why. Like, yep. how, look, why did they choose that this person wasn't a person you wanted to get behind or make a part of your roster? Precisely. Yes. And it's one of those instances where I've been thinking about this for a, a large part of the day. And the more I think about it, Gino, has Vince McMahon created anything close to a star since John Cena? Hear me out on this. Okay. I would argue he did not create CM Punk. They fell ass backwards into that when they finally gave him a mic and said, here, air your grievances. That'll work. They basically had already thought he was done with the company at that point, and they just fell into something they had to keep. Vince didn't create that. And if you're going to say he created Roman Reigns, suffering succotash, I think you're wrong. It took a pandemic and him going away and him coming back with Paul Heyman having incredible involvement in all of the things that he did to get the version of Roman Reigns that can carry the torch. You take a look at NXT, and this is what gets me, because the changes that were made a couple of years ago in NXT were made because, according to people within the company, Vince didn't think Triple H was creating stars within the NXT system. Look at this show. Look at other takeovers like it. That person's money. That person's money. That person's money. He is giving Vince McMahon finished products. And Vince did absolutely nothing with an alarming, alarming number of them. Now, here's That's one thing I will say. Me. Let me let me play a little devil's advocate only for the, the sake of, of doing it. There are some of them on this roster that it was their own fault or maybe some of them. Yes. Right. Or things maybe just didn't work out. Sure. And I will say there there have been not not, you know, I, I'm I, I don't know what a percentage would be. But there have been a few times where I think you or I would have probably said that person is money. And then leaving the WWE, we haven't really seen much from them after. Or leaving NXT, we haven't seen too much from them after. And I don't know what that means, right? I don't know if that if that means if WWE would have gone all in on them, they would have been fine. Or maybe there was something that behind closed doors we don't know about where, like, like when I said the why they pick some of these people or why they don't, maybe there is something. Some sort of a weird intangible that's either a good thing or a bad thing that they're looking for sometimes that we don't know. Because you look at a group like this, like you said, and some people, it doesn't make sense. And then you look at others, and to me, it's so weird that just like a whole group of the guys right before this group are still around now. Like why yep. this particular group 
the ones before and after have done pretty well. But why, like, this chunk, like you said, was it something about this group that Vince took personal with Triple H taking over and that this was, like, around the time where they were traveling, they were their own brand, they had just been coming off of the big Kevin Owens, Finn Balor, Samoa Joe, Nakamura, and so this was a this was a different product than you were getting on the main roster, right? This was from top to bottom the best level of wrestling that WWE had ever put together were these few years of NXT when you're talking about like floor level wrestling and what their pay-per-views were. That's for sure and NXT felt different. It felt so different from Raw's and SmackDown's that were so inflated and had so much filler for the TV time. NXT every week for one hour was must-see TV for serious wrestling fans. It was an easy watch. You can keep up with it. And the one-hour running time meant that there was no filler and it just absolutely flew by. Then AEW comes into the fold. And Vince, being Vince, decides, hey, we need to put something on TV that rivals AEW. Let's put NXT on TV, make it two hours with commercials, and make it everything it isn't. And for a little while, it was still a good show, but then you could see it wasn't the black and gold brand that we had become accustomed to seeing on a weekly basis and seeing these phenomenal takeover shows that were still good, but weren't the world-class takeover shows that we'd come to expect. And then you get NXT 2.0, which in hindsight, can we all admit was just an absolutely horrible idea. Oh, well, well, the whole, the branding of it was, I, I didn't love, but, and, but what's, no. what's, well, it was just weird. The like the they didn't really have an idea, which was what you could tell. Like they didn't have a plan of what they were going to do. It wasn't like they even told you or they brought a bunch up and then it, it was just it was poorly handled execution wise. What what's funny is as we sit here right now on May 30th, 2023, I can honestly say that for for my money still. The takeovers aren't nearly as good of a level, like a floor level that we, we would get before. And that's because AEW is doing some of those things on their show. And WWE will, will, will do a little bit more of those on the main roster now that Triple H is in charge. I will give them that. They do have a little bit more of this style of match and this style of pay-per-view on the, the main shows. But I actually think it's funny because when NXT started, and this happens like with every team that we root for, Andrew, or in any sport, it becomes very cyclical. Like right now, the last couple months, NXT has been, the, in my opinion, like the most consistent week-to-week show that you get like a pretty good amount of wrestling. And now I've I've had these characters for a year to where, oh, wow, like you had Carmelo Hayes. And Braun Breaker, who's now turned heel, and they're kind of finding his footing. Wes Lee has done a fantastic job. Love that uh, guy. He's been really good as a babyface. And then in the women's division, you look what they have going, where they brought in Roxanne Perez, and she's still a little green, and she's got to work on the the ultimate white meat babyface character that she has, but great there. Uh, Cora Jade is kind of finding her footing. She's super young. She's still got to kind of grow into her character as that mean girl, but she's really good too. Um, Nikita Lyons got hurt, but she's great. They just pulled up Zoe Stark 
and you've got Tiffany Stratton, who's now the champ. A year ago, Andrew, there were some shows when Chad and I were recapping where it was like, oh, no. They would they would give a couple people the mic, and they'd put them out there, and we would say, oh, no, this isn't great. Like, you could see them working it out. But on the flip side, now these people are are kind of like they're ready products. They're almost ready to rock and roll. So it is funny to see the, the ebbs and flows, but it, it feels like five years ago watching this NXT, it's totally different for good, for bad. Um, AEW, whether you like it or not, has done great things for the industry, giving everybody another opportunity to have a company where guys and gals can go get paid. And there can be a little bit of an alternative. I'll say they've been inconsistent in what they sort of preached from the beginning, but overall NXT kind of tries to give you what, or AEW is sort of trying to give you what, what NXT was trying to give you before, right? They're kind of trying to scratch that same sort of itch. Yeah. Um, Since you're on this, a rising tide lifts all boats. And if the industry is better, everyone in that industry is going to wind up with more chances to find things to do. And fans are going to have more room to find the things that they like. By the way, here's, here's a hot take here. We can all have our own opinions as to what's good, what's bad. I don't care about that. Watch what you like and urge other people to watch what they like. We can all like different things and that can be okay. And isn't it cool that we can all watch it like now, like how like 20 years ago, we wouldn't have even been able to watch things like this. Now we can watch everything real quickly for like five bucks a month or pull it up on YouTube or New Japan. the, The important thing is, I don't know when it became okay for adults to not act like adults. I know. Act like adults. It's not hard. It's really not hard. Okay, we'll get into the NXT TakeOver 2018 Philadelphia. There were a couple pre-show matches, and even on these, Andrew, Nikki Cross, Lacey Evans, they're still both around, but... You know, Nikki Cross has actually been the women's champion. That was not a great run that she had there, and they've never really found it with her on the main roster. Lacey Evans, they've tried a couple times with her, and it's never hooked. They just they they she's good looking, and her her real life backstory makes her like an incredible baby face. But they haven't been able to find a way to present that the way they wanted to. And every time they've tried to tap into it, it actually makes her come off as more of a heel. Yeah. Um, the other thing, and I'm very happy Chad, our friend, is not on here because I know he's a Lacey fan. <laughs> she can't work. No, she's not. And and the base level, you just kind of compare her to a lot of the women that are standing across from her when she gets in there. If right. their if their level in ring is better and they're better, their character is more fleshed out, and they're a little better on the mic, or they kind of know they who they are. They got to figure it out more with her, and I don't know what that means. I don't know if she would be good as a valet. I don't know if if they can f- work with her more. What it is, but it's I don't know. It's been it's been missing, and they, they keep trying with her. You could tell they really like her. Well, she checks a lot of Vince's boxes, and we'll leave it at that. She, I mean, she's she does. She keep checks getting a lot of chances because of that. She does have the look, and honestly, Gino, if she had come around ten or twelve years ago. She'd have been one of the better workers. You're hundred percent right. The level the is just is, so different yeah, now. The floor is so through different. the roof. And that's going to be the first thing when we evaluate triple H's body of work as a wrestling executive is that guy helped raise the level of women's wrestling in the United States yep. to where it was treated seriously 
to where when Charlotte and Natalia had their series of matches that showed, hey, listen, we've got some really talented women on this roster that can do a heck of a lot more than pose in bikinis on beaches. He gave a lot of very talented women chances with the ball to run with it and show what they could do. And a lot of them did a lot of really, really good stuff. One of the other uh, dark matches was the TM61, the Mighty Don't Kneel. They came over as a kind of highly touted tag team, but they didn't really connect or click too much in NXT. They had a couple injuries that they were sort of unlucky. Yeah, with some they timing, got hurt. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but they're pretty good. I've seen a lot of their work in New Japan and in other places, some independent stuff. Like, they can both go. Shane Thorne can definitely go on his own. They defeated twin brothers called the Ely brothers, Gabriel and, and Uriel Ely, who were uh, – two twins that were massive in size, but they didn't really connect. So not, none of these guys are around anymore. None of these four, and they never really had like big runs on NXT either. And then in the, the third uh, dark match, you had Roderick Strong versus Tyler Bate. Uh, I do like that they've been able to figure it out with Tyler Bate, and I will give them a lot of credit. They've really incorporated a lot of the WWE UK wrestlers um, to NXT, uh, NXT UK and the main roster, even – Right now, you know, Gunther was someone as Valter who has come up and he's been treated masterfully. We could never even have imagined that they would take that guy so seriously. And anyone legitimately says, yep, he could be a world champion right now in the next six months to a year, especially with that newly created title that they have. Um, Tyler Bate, he's doing well in, in NXT. So he actually just had a match with uh, with Wesley on a pay-per-view last week and uh, Joe Gacy was a good triple threat match to open the show. And Roderick, let's give him a little love, Andrew. He he had a run in NXT for a while uh, with the Undisputed Era. He did some good work with them. He was North American champ. And then now he's gone over to AEW. He's They've treated him really well in the first few weeks he's been there. He's got a couple big wins. He got a win over Daniel Garcia. He actually w- beat Jericho um, in a match that was like a shenanigans, schmozzy, falls count anywhere match. But he's been a part of building a feud with Jericho and Cole. So... A lot of guys go over to AEW, get one match on TV, get a big debut, and then we just don't see him again. They end up on the YouTube shows. They've actually treated him pretty well for a a few weeks in a row, so good to see that. I've always been a fan of his. I just, personality-wise, he's had a tough time standing out. But in ring, Roderick is as good as they come. That's for sure. The problem with him is he's got a ceiling, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You can work with guys that have a ceiling as long as you acknowledge what their limitations are and work around them as best you can. I don't think Roderick Strong should ever cut a babyface promo at all, ever. It just should not happen. He is not a Mike guy. But his match with Jericho, where they told that great story of going around the arena. (laughs) It was fun, man. And then they worked in, oh, Adam Cole can't set foot in the arena. Let's go outside. It was cool. He's in the dirt. really good. It was good. Yeah, and that was really cool and good on Roderick Strong for that. He actually asked for his release when he saw that Cole went over and Kyle O'Reilly went over and Bobby Fish went over. And I don't blame him for that. But that came not long after he had signed, I believe it was a new two-year contract with WWE. And that was always a little bit mystifying to me because... If you knew these guys were going over there, why did you sign the contract? I don't know. But it's good for Roderick Strong that he's there. His wife is Marina Shafir, right? 
If so, they're both in the same that company is, now. That is and correct. That's always, yep. that's always pretty cool. Yeah, and, and again, like he's been treated really, really well. He, like you said, he's always someone who's been good in ring, and he he could have been someone if they wanted to get behind him in the main roster. You could have seen him as like a mid card titles guy or a good tag team guy, like he was on NXT. He he's a little small too, so when you put him in there with the the uh, the particular opponents, it does stand out a little bit. And the, the thing about him is is what you notice is like it's sort of a weird way of saying it. Some guys that are are smaller in stature. They can be small, but they don't look as small, whether it's because of just sort of a build, Andrew, or maybe yep. even the way they wrestle, you know, um, a couple guys to point out, um, AJ Styles, Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson, very small, but you don't really realize it as much when they're in ring. But then there's a couple others, like sometimes Roderick does look really small when he's in there. Um, and that can be a little jarring when you try to elevate them, like you're saying to you know, main event levels, like you put him in the, in the ring with Randy Orton and you don't even think of Randy Orton as a guy who's massive, you know, but he just sort of towers over a, someone like that. And it, uh, I think, um, the masked man, David Shoemakers calls it like the Randy Orton test. Like, you know, if someone looks like they're a WWE star, if you can put him in the ring with Orton and it doesn't just look weird. And I, I always thought that was sort of funny. And, uh, yep, there, there are little guys that wrestle like they have it. That there are a couple of guys that the biggest example of this is in AEW right now. I am begging, absolutely begging. I am on my knees begging, push Bandito to the freaking moon. I know they Bandito, they did the same thing with Roosh before they were, they bring them in, they're fantastic, but you don't get them, you don't get a win really ever. And so it's hard to get behind them more than, oh, we know they're going to come out and have a great match and lose to Moxley. You know, Uh, Bandito, I think, and there's going to be people out there roasting me for this. If he's booked properly, has the potential to be AEW's version of Mysterio. You sell those masks, you build around the guy, and people have built around the guy before. He turned down WWE around the time of TakeOver Philadelphia, bringing it back to the show we're talking about, so that he could stay in Ring of Honor and basically be the centerpiece of a lot of the things that they were trying to do and he had a lot of stuff they gave him out of the park. The guy is just legitimately otherworldly talented with some of the things he can do, both athletically and from a power standpoint. That guy has more pounds per square inch in him than just about anybody. Okay, uh, we are through the kickoff matches, and we get things started with Percy Watson and Moro Ronaldo. believe that uh, the third member of our team, Nigel McGuinness, was sick, so he missed the evening. And as they started to introduce the matches for the night, they just get interrupted right away by the Authors of Pain, who, or first actually it was the uh, Undisputed Era, I think. No, Authors of Pain first, then Undisputed Era. They, they cut them off, and it was Paul Ellering with them. Then we get Kyle O'Reilly and Bobby Fish. And as they come out, Authors of Pain attack. And the first two and a half matches on the show... And it's funny, like we were talking about the level that was raised with NXT. Ten years ago, we would have said these are some of the best matches that you have. They were all solid and above average. There was nothing really wrong with them. Maybe a couple flubs in one of them. But this match was a little harder, I think, for the fans because while the the Authors of Pain were kind of a cool babyface team to root for, they weren't like when the crowd would get behind a team like Alpha Academy or 
DIY or one of those really big babyface teams that they wanted. So I do think the crowd was into this match because it was really good and there were some fun spots, but they didn't they didn't really have a team to get behind quite as much because the undisputed era are the cool heels. The authors of pain are just sort of the big, big uh, bruisers and impressive stuff here. This match goes about 15 minutes. Andrew, I probably have it in like the three and a half ish, definitely above three range. And we had, you know, big power moves early undisputed era gets attacked by the authors of pain right off the bat, big running shoulder tackles from Occam and Razor. Um, but a lot of the story of the matches early on, um, the leg injury for Ray, uh, for Occam. So they really are working on the left knee of Occam throughout and they do a good job. Fish and O'Reilly over and over working on the knee, working on the left knee, splash to the knee, leg submission, Santon splash. Um, then we get Occam with the big tag razor comes in crowd gets uh, pumped for this, you know, hot tag spot. Um, lots of power moves from razor, right? When he comes in. And then the heels are able to slow him down a little bit uh, once again. And then it comes to the point where he's uh, Razor is sort of stuck because he needs to make a tag, but his tag team partner is still dealing with an injury. But he comes in, and the the final sequence I thought was was pretty good. We get um, when Occam comes in, we get another leg submission on that weakened leg. Um, Razor is going at it with Fish. All, everybody's down here. Uh, at one point, and the fans are chanting AOP and, and undisputed kind of dueling chants there. They keep going after Occam's leg. Um, we get a big buckle bomb to O'Reilly from Occam. So now Authors of Pain are in complete control here. They go for their big super collider, like the double power bombs where they knock them together. But Kyle O'Reilly intercepts with the Hurricane Rana. And uh, it, was, it was a pretty cool spot here. Occam nails into Razor. And they actually get a roll-up to win this match after about 15 minutes. Andrew, what'd you think about the opener? So I have to admire Bobby Fish and Kyle O'Reilly here because I don't know if you noticed, but Occam and Razor, they had some heft to them. They're large. They're heavy. Carrying them was not easy. And that's precisely what happened here. That is not to say Occam and Razor were totally incapable and incompetent, whatever. I'm not saying that, but if you look at this match on a critical level with the story that was being told and the psychology behind it, Gino, I say it a lot. Wrestling is at its best when it is simple. And the simplest story you can tell in a match is little guy chopping the tree down. And that's precisely what happened here. They compared this to the old Minnesota Wrecking Crew matches where the Andersons would target a limb, an arm, a leg, a knee, whatever, and they'd work that throughout the course of the match. And because of that, the floor for whatever matches they were in was so much higher because anybody can tell that story regardless of the experience that you have. And there are some cool power spots but a lot of them are because you can see Fish and O'Reilly guiding these guys mm-hmm. into the exact right place at the exact right time yep. to get the exact biggest reaction possible. I thought this was a very good tag match. I had it at three and three quarters. Now, I got to have I got one complaint here because there was a trend among wrestling audiences around this time and If you've been in the audience for a wrestling event between, I'm going to say 2016 and early 2019, 
You saw it and you felt it. It was the rise of probably the worst crowd involvement I would say I see on a consistent basis. The one, two, two, sweet. After every near fall. <laughs> the first time it's creative. The second time you acknowledge it. Anything after the third time is overkill. It's not fun. And it was really, really distracting with how many near falls there were in this match. And thankfully, the crowd was very into the last two matches on the program to where they sort of forgot to do that. And that made those matches much more enjoyable for me. Just one of my pet peeves. And that's not something that I thoroughly enjoyed. But speaking of things that I enjoyed, though, the segment after the match. NXT used to do this so well where the way they would introduce debuting talent is they would mm -hmm. show them in the, the crowd. front row at ringside and you'd give the crowd a chance at the oh shit reaction. And this was the first of a couple of those, not with the Viking Raiders, not with the Viking experience, not with the war Raiders, but war machine. It's so simple. Just do this. Present the two guys as you presented them in the front row of the NXT show. This is not hard. And I don't understand for the life of me how there have been so many stops and starts with these two guys with how good they are and the body of work that they've had in spite of some of the worst booking any tag team has ever had to undergo. I don't get it. I feel bad for them. Yeah, they've... they've swung and missed on the the main roster. They had a good run on NXT. It wasn't nearly as good as their run prior to NXT the and the stuff that they did. That they were but they, in was so good. It was they so, did some so really good, good work and match, they yeah. they've had some fine matches on on the main roster, but the problem is like we said, I think that for a while the Usos had those titles for so long, the rest of the tag team division didn't really have anything to do, and that hurts your tag team division in particular when you don't have any title belts to shoot for. The thing that you remember the most about them is bowling with the Street Profits on Monday Night Raw. That's the thing that sticks out most to them after a few uh, from them after a few years. And um, again, you could at any point put them in a match, let them go 15 with someone and they will impress the hell out of you. I just don't know why they don't get that opportunity to do that more often. Like I mean, why won't why don't you yeah. just put them out on TV more often and let them go 15, 20 minutes? I don't know. And it's there are a couple of guys on this show that we'll get to that they show in the audience that regardless of any personal feelings you have about them or their work or anything outside, you look at them and you go, if you ran their careers 10 times, we got the worst of the 10 roles. Yeah. And I think you can say that about War Machine. And yes, I'm calling them War Machine. Yep. I, I hope like hell you don't get sued by Marvel for that. <laughs> So we get a, a look at uh, Andrade and Zelina. They're in the locker room. They're getting ready for the main event later tonight. And then we set up for the Velveteen Dream versus Cassius Ono match with Chris Hero. This was a match that only went about 10, 10 and a half minutes or so. But leading into it, Cat, uh, Velveteen Dream was saying that he could beat Cassius Ono in under a minute. He said he was going to beat him in 30 seconds. He uh, he comes down, makes his entrance, Velveteen Dream, has a man and a woman at ringside with a special mouthpiece, and, and Cassius Ono enters, and 
we have our Velveteen Dream versus Cassius Ono match. Velveteen Dream, just to give everybody an example of how well thought of he was at around this point as a prospect and someone who had a big, big future. You know, I'm curious a lot, Andrew, when we do these shows, I like to read through one or two other people's recaps, kind of see what other people thought of the matches after I go through my own compare contrast where people may have been different. It's always nice to kind of get a feel because a lot of people will do these recaps live. So you can kind of remember what it was like at the company at that time, get another refresher. I was reading through one that was on uh, TJR wrestling. The John report does a lot of recaps for a lot of different stuff. And he said, out of anybody on the NXT roster, Velveteen Dream may have the best potential to be a main eventer on the main roster. Young in his early 20s, plenty of time, money, and already winning the crowd over. So that's who this guy was at this point. Um, Velveteen Dream was creative. But again, we're talking about a guy who we have no idea what what has gone on with him behind closed doors. And he's not with the company anymore. He's not anywhere. And I don't know if there are charges, rumors, allegations, things that are uh, discussed when he's discussed are not good. They're not great um, in any way, shape, or form. But just seeing him here, it's another one that you felt like he was going to be a big part of this company moving forward for many, many years. This isn't one that I'll give them any sort of swing and a miss crap for. This is more of a guy who seems like he has issues and it was his own doing why he's not around here. I will say he had some really, really good matches. This match was was good and solid. And I'm, I've always been a big Cassie Sono, Chris Hero fan. I had the privilege of calling him at a bunch of live matches where there were like 50 people around sometimes. And he was so cool always and just a good dude and just a real, real fan of wrestling himself as well as a, a great wrestler. But the, the, there wasn't like a great chemistry with the two of them. Um, there was, and there were like three or four spots that seemed like they didn't flow all that well, Andrew. It's not as if the match was bad. But it it was noticeable when you compare it to some of the other matches on the show that are so clean and so smooth. Um, and, and I don't always need a match to be smooth. It can be hard-hitting sometimes. But it felt like there were maybe three different times where they were going for something and it just didn't come off the way they, they wanted it to. Um, right off the bat, Dream, hard punch to the face, and he tells the ref to count him out. He starts celebrating, and then Cassius gets up and starts beating the crap out of him with forearms, knocks him out. Uh, Dream hits a spine buster, um, then a big suplex. Um, He starts working on the arm and then the chin lock. Um, He's yelling at him, talking trash, Dream over. Um, And then Ono comes back, big kick to the face, double axe handle, uh, spinning suplex, back and forth strikes, big forearms. Uh, running boot to the face, Santon. So Ono's building things up. He's getting a lot of his offense in, big spinning kick. Um, and then he goes for a super kick. He gets blocked. Dream hits that DDT, but it didn't look fantastic. Um, it got a two count. And then he goes up to the top rope. Ono kicked him. Um, he goes for a, a Samoan drop. Again, not smooth. Um, they, I think he was going for that Death Valley driver there. Uh so at the end, kind of, you know, the, the last few minutes here, there were some some tough spots. But both of these guys work hard, and you could always see the potential in Dream. And I always thought that Cassius Ono, like timing-wise, 
And, you know, just kind of got the short end of the stick. He was maybe a few years too late in his career. He didn't really get a fair chance. There was always the story about him supposed to be Roman Reigns, right, in the Shield? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a heck of a story. And, look, they brought him in, and he had a run for a couple of years. They let him go. And credit to him, because he worked his ass off to put together one exceptional match after another on the independent scene. Chris Hero had one of the best matches I have ever seen in person at the old, unfortunately demolished American Legion Hall in Reseda, California. He worked a match that was second on a PWG card with Trent Beretta. And those two tore the joint down. I was not expecting that at all whatsoever. But this is a guy that on his best day was as good as there was from bell to bell. The problem with him was he didn't have the look. He looked like your average middle-aged guy wearing basketball shorts. Mm -hmm. That was the problem with him. And he did start getting like bigger and bigger, right? He was getting even more, a little more out of shape as he was getting a little bit older, which it was probably, it probably hurt him when it came down, you know, overall perception, right? A little bit. Yeah. But credit to him because the run of matches that he had, got him another run with WWE to where he was making that kind of money again. The problem was he was used as a gatekeeper of sorts, a a jobber to the stars kind of guy that was just there to elevate others rather than elevating himself. And for that reason, we didn't really see a lot of Cassius Ono in that second run after the first couple of months. I like the way you put it with Velveteen Dream because If you were to look at some of the matches he had in the late 20 teens, not knowing anything about what happened to the man behind Velveteen Dream in 2020 with the speaking out movement, you would see Rick Rude 2.0. That's the guy. That's the guy that you could potentially build up as this main event guy that's different, that people look and say, oh, I want to see what this guy does next. And there are very few guys that have that. We talk about having it. I'd argue that's different. This is star quality. And he had that in spades at a very, very young age, despite being just a so-so worker that could be carried. He wasn't the kind of ring general, but then again, he was in his early 20s. I didn't particularly love this match, Gino. Um, The first minute is great. They they do the knockout spot. Because I think, to hit it, we have seen both of them do so much better than this. Yep. Yeah, that's for sure. The first minute is great. They do the knockout spot. Velveteen Dream is jumping up and down like an idiot. Except people correctly point out, if he's knocked out, cover him. This isn't a boxing match. Cover him. Yeah. And naturally, you get Cassius Ono getting up and beating the living daylights out of him for a couple of minutes. Now, one thing I noticed with this match that I don't often see in Chris Hero Cassius Ono matches, his stuff looks and sounds really stiff. He knows how to throw a great working punch. He knows how to throw a great working forearm. But Gino, he tells a lot of funny jokes. Jokes that are knee slappers. Yep. And the first time you see it, you can't, you can't unsee, unsee it. it. Exactly. 
Yep, and, and, and that's not a knock. If something looks and sounds good, that puts you miles ahead. But if you can see and hear that, it's sort of a look behind the curtain at something you're not supposed to see. Mm-hmm. And fair or not, it adjusts the perception of what you're trying to do. And yep. on top of that, after the first minute, which was a lot of fun, it just sort of turned into a normal match that you'd see on NXT's weekly television. Completely agree. Which, which isn't a bad thing because it wasn't a terrible match. I had it at two and a quarter, but Dream hits that sloppy Death Valley driver that I think Ono was trying to leap up onto his shoulders and jump into, and it looked more so like he just somersaulted down over the guy, which is still insanely athletic when you consider Cassius Ono's a big dude but it just looked sloppy. And then he hits the elbow, but the effort was more on the distance covered by the elbow than the form of the elbow. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't a fantastic finish to what wasn't a fantastic match. And it just didn't seem like it needed to be here. No, you're right. It it didn't feel like pay-per-view worthy when you compared it to the others in here. And that was what NXT did. They changed the format and they've done this on the, on the main roster too, which I think is one of the best things that triple H has done is that we're not getting these epically long five, six, seven hour shows. The the mania shows will still be long, which is fine. And they've split them up to two nights. So they aren't as long, but, but they pick out five or six matches that they really think are the most important. And they give everybody time. I like that format a lot better, Andrew, than trying to squeeze everybody in. I understand if you want to do that once or twice on the year with a battle royal or some ladder matches to try to get a lot of your roster in. But for the most part, I enjoy giving these feuds and matches all a little bit of time to breathe. This one just felt out of place on the show. It really did. Um, Even... The undisputed the, the tag match, it wasn't like the, the tag match to start was a five-star match, but it was still much more fluid. The intensity was much better. The crowd was much more kind of into it throughout. And, and then everything following this was a lot better. So disappointing spot on the night. Uh, again, not not a bad match, but when you're ranking the matches on this show, this was my least favorite and just sort of yeah. felt like the least important on the show. And also knowing what we now know, or the whispers that we've already heard about everything that went on with Velveteen Dream off camera. It's mm-hmm. a really uncomfortable watch. It is. It is. We move along. We get a look at Maria Menounos. They say always that she's... Always appreciated. It is always appreciated to get a look at Maria Menounos. In the crowd. Shout out Channel One, Maria Menounos. Uh, she is a big wrestling fan. She pops up all the time. She was the ring announcer for the first ever Women's Royal Rumble, which was the next night. So you get a lot of advertising throughout the night and by the way if you are a completionist with this segment we did the 2018 royal rumble show a while back go and find that and listen to it after you listen to this one yeah it's a very good show both of the rumbles were really really well done that night and um maria gets a little shout out there they look at Johnny Gargano in the locker room with uh, Candice LeRae, his wife, and they will mention throughout the night that Candice is now going to be signed. I had the privilege of calling both of them um, at some uh, some shows. Really cool. Candice is, um, does great work. I mean, she you look up some of the old matches that she used to have where she would have these bloody hardcore tables matches against the Young Bucks and just like who's who when she was actually a tag team 
with another wrestler who now, after a few years, you don't really like bringing up or talking about more uh, much Joey Ryan. But she oh, actually oh, had a crazy, oh. I know, she had a crazy run with him where uh, where they were a tag team match. And, and she was in like tag matches against like the best, some of the best tag teams in the industry, just getting brutalized. But Candice shows up on NXT TV for the first time here. As we get ready for the women's championship match, Ember Moon and Shayna Baszler. Video package to set this thing up. Shayna comes out first. They they give her the Goldberg-style uh, entrance where they show her walking through the uh, through the back. And then Ember Moon comes out. In, uh, we get the in-ring intros for the championship matches. And there was a little uh, a funny moment, too, because they're in Philadelphia. And then even though Ember is by far the baby face and Shayna was probably one of the bigger heels that there's ever been in NXT, when they announced that Ember was from Dallas, they booed because they're in Philly, which I just love. Like the Philly fans are like, screw you, Cowboys, and like, screw you, Dallas. So that uh, that always make me laugh. Nothing better than rivalries where they're like, oh, we love Ember, but. You announced that she's from Dallas, so screw her for a second, and now we're going to go well, back. Well, <laughs> it was also the week before Super Bowl, Yep. and they booed John Cena the next night because he was from Massachusetts, Just home so of great. Patriots. And that made for a couple of funny things because he came out and screamed into the camera, I'm a Tom Brady guy. And the entire building is just booing him out of it. <laughs> and then after the show, I thought this was cool. It's probably still on YouTube if you can find it. He actually came out and led the entire crowd singing Fly Eagles Fly, which is a really cool little Easter egg. <laughs> awesome. So uh, we get ready for the women's match here for the NXT Women's Championship. This one goes about 10 minutes, and it, it was the same sort of style that a lot of Shayna's matches were. And Andrew, I actually enjoyed it, right? It's just a different style, and you know with the, with someone like Shayna Baszler, that's what makes her so imposing and intimidating, is that in real life, she could kick your ass, she could wrap you up like a pretzel. We've seen her do it uh, on UFC and in uh, MMA many times before coming here. And, you know, a lot of people... No women's UFC because of Ronda. Shayna was a really decorated fighter for years and years before Ronda was even around. And she is good friends with Ronda. And actually, we've seen Shayna recently. She just won the women's tag team championship a couple days ago. Um, actually, last night, we, when you and I are recording on this on a, on a Tuesday, her and Ronda are the tag team champions now for the women. But Shayna would always give you a good floor, but kind of have a ceiling with some of her matches. Compared to maybe some of the uh, the four horsewomen who could probably get you a little bit higher on the star ratings, but it was a different feel. Like these always felt like a real fight. And Ember is someone who can who can also lay it out and can take it. If you've seen some of Ember Moon's recent work now uh, as Athena, she's been the Ring of Honor Women's Champion, and she's done really good work since they moved her over there as a heel. I actually saw one of her matches live at the uh, the Galen Center on WrestleMania weekend. I think she's been doing good work. Uh, this match was solid. Ember, um, you know, for a lot of it, she sells. Early on, she goes after Shayna. Suicide dive. She takes her out. But then Shayna gets in control. And Shayna starts really working over uh, the, I think it's the left elbow of Ember. So she kind of targets that. This is not long after she had injured Dakota Kai. So Shayna, knee drop. She's kicking the back of Ember's um, arm. 
arm bar there all over. She's bending back her hand. Just really good, like, like offense that makes sense. She's targeting a body part, and it all is great. She's stretching the arm, uh, slaps, kicks, forms, spring rod, cross body. Um, from Ember Moon, though, she is sort of bounces back, and she's back in control. Um, she's still kind of selling that arm injury, though. She hits a big clothesline. Uh, she goes up top, and she hits the stunner, um, but she's still in in you know selling that arm injury. So Shayna's out of the ring, and Ember can't cover her. So the ref has to call for medical personnel to look at her in the middle of the match. Crowd's not into it. They're chanting bull bullshit throughout, and it. I I didn't. What I don't like about the the stoppage sometimes, and I understand because if you don't know if someone's really hurt and sometimes you're doing it, other times it felt like this was part of the match because I don't know if they were really even checking on her with anything. And it just kind of hurts the flow of the match when you interrupt it for like a minute or two. Uh, they've, they've had to do this a few times with Samoa Joe when he was bleeding um, in NXT. Then following this, you get Shayna again working on the arm, big arm bar. Uh, Ember's able to break out of it. Shayna gets it back on again. And so the match slows down a little with some of the rest holds here. Again, everything makes sense. This would have been a match 10 years ago that we would have said was one of the better women's matches we've seen in WWE. But the level compared to like a Bailey Sasha match here or, or maybe some of the Charlotte stuff and Becky, it wasn't quite there. Um, fans start to get excited for Ember as she is able to battle out of some of Shayna's power moves at the end. Um, and She's able to do the old slip on a banana peel, kind of cover her and hold on for the one, two, three while Shayna's still holding on to the arm. Now, it's kind of fun and creative spot, and you could tell that they would still have more to come from this. But the one thing I didn't love overall, Andrew, is now in the first three matches, we have two roll up finishes. See, I didn't mind that because they were different versions sure. of that finish. Sure. And we're on a show where there's not going to be a lot of matches. So you do what you can you try to establish some variety while also protecting people that need to be protected. Shayna came up during a really strange time because all throughout the prior three years, WWE was looking for someone who they could book as a viable opponent to Asuka. Asuka, as you may remember, left NXT without dropping the women's title because there was just nobody that was there that they could possibly build up as an opponent to kill the streak that she had had at that point. The second she leaves, in comes Shayna Baszler, who would have absolutely been a viable candidate to do that. The timing was just really strange. And as a result, instead of having to compete against the four horsewomen and Asuka and Nia Jax, who was also there at the time, Shayna's competing against Ember Moon, who's great, like Ember, like Athena and ROH. They've really stumbled upon a good character for her. She's clearly got a role there. That's great. Kairi Sane is there. She was very good for a time. Dakota Kai was there. She was raw. They actually show her in the buildup to this as someone that Shayna injured and sent to the sidelines, which was a cool little twist. But the timing was very strange. Shayna came in and she was presented as a different kind of threat. She did not look like the standard WWE women's wrestler. That was not her game. She tears arms out of sockets. That's what she does. And as a result, 
there was a little bit of a struggle as far as finding the best ways to book her. I think this match I liked, I had it as a three-star match. Ember starts out hot. She gets a suicide dive to the floor. They do a sequence in the ring where Shayna works the arm and she hits that stomp that just looks sickening the same way that Pentagon Jr.'s arm breaker thing looked really sickening. Simple yet effective. Again, simple stuff. That's the stuff NXT did very, very well for a very long time. Ember makes the comeback and then the medics come out. And Gino, I love the way you put it. Everybody saw through this for what it was. And I understand you're trying to tell the story of the babyface conquering adversity. They could have done that very, very easily without having the medics come out. Have Ember sell that she's not injured, but hurt and work that into the match without the interruption. And if you do that, I think this goes from a three-star match to three and a quarter, three and a half. It's a good, solid 10-minute match that protects Shayna because Shayna's locked down and Ember escapes by the skin of her teeth. And you know there's going to be more where that came from with two workers that can go. I didn't hate this. I thought this was reasonably good. It's just that one spot right in the middle of the match that really capped how effective it was going to be. Decent match, though. Three-ish, three-ish plus around there? Yeah, I've got, it at, I've got it at three, and it would have been maybe three and a quarter, three and a half without the spot. Yep, I agree. We're uh, we're similar here. We uh, we then got a commercial for the Mixed Max Challenge. Remember that thing? That was kind of fun. Uh, that, yeah, I, it, and I got to first... tell you, AEW could steal that idea really easy. You're right. They have a lot of pairings, and, uh, and that would work well. We then, Andrew... Got a look uh, at another star in the audience, in the crowd, Trevor Ricochet. Man, big uh, big response for Ricochet. And he's someone who we've talked about a few times on on this show in, in sort of the trajectory of his career. Because it's funny, I think everybody's expectation for what his ceiling could be is honestly like WrestleMania main eventer. You know, like the guy who wins the title in the biggest match because he's got a look too. He's a good looking guy and he can go in the ring like really good. He also he while he's not a great promo, he does seem like he has a pretty good connection with the crowd, just like an overall baby face connection. I, I do think that the fact he hasn't been able to cut the incredible memorable promos has held him back a little bit and also some of his size but he's someone who he had a pretty good run in NXT and was able to get have some really good matches and he was treated very well. Since he's come up to the main roster, it's been different. That's funny. If you actually start to dive through what he's done on the main roster, he's probably done more and been a little bit more successful than people realize and think. And I do feel like in the last year or so since Triple H has had the reins, we're not seeing him lose in two minutes on TV in a roll-up in stupid reasons anymore. When we see Ricochet, even if he's not being pushed like a main eventer, we're seeing him doing the things that he does well. It's a very Paul Heyman way of booking him. Put him out on TV for 15 minutes and let him go. Like, there's no reason why this guy shouldn't be on your TV show every single week, even if he's not as big of a deal as you think. And as I'm saying this, Andrew, 
Maybe he is in line for a big push. He just won a spot into the uh, Money in the Bank match. That would be really cool for him. You sort of feel like he's one of those type of guys who, when Roman Reigns had the one championship, a guy like Ricochet never had a chance to actually sniff another, to sniff a world title. He's been a U.S. champ. He's been an IC champ. Right now, if you were telling me there was a heel or someone like a Bobby Lashley or an Austin Theory or a Gunther that won the title, I could absolutely see you pushing Ricochet up into that spot. So I guess it's all cyclical how it goes, because right now I probably feel better about him than I have on the main roster at any point. And you hit on a key word there that I want to stress, and that's cyclical, because he suffered from, after he got to the main roster, a lot of start and stop booking. When Paul Heyman was put in charge of Raw for a little less than a year, Ricochet was one of his pet projects, and he made sure Ricochet got plenty of on-air time, to the point that in one of my favorite Royal Rumbles of all time, the 2020 Royal Rumble, Mm -hmm. when Brock Lesnar comes out at one and eventually gets eliminated by Drew McIntyre, who's the other guy in the ring? Rick O'Shea. I remember when he came in, people thought he was going to be a Seamus-type character named Rick O'Shea. I thought that that was was always funny. That was my line. There we go. That was great. I appreciate you giving me credit. Look at Um, that. Anyway, yeah. um, So the problem with him is any sort of pushes that he had weren't really sustained beyond a couple of weeks. He'd get pushed for a couple of weeks, and then he'd go back down the card. He'd get pushed for a couple of weeks, and then he'd get back down the card. They're all you need in order to get a guy over like Ricochet. Just be steady and consistent mm-hmm. with him. That's mm-hmm. all we need. And, and then in our minds, it seems like some people get that. In our minds, they just start moving up a level, right? Like a slot where where we where we think they should be. The more you see them, the more you feel like, oh yeah, they could do that. And it's just it's it's really simple. Like you said, you have to be consistent with it. And with him. We just sort of look around and now it's been a while where it's like, oh, yeah, he hasn't had really bad losses is what it comes down to. I mean, to be honest, when you mentioned Gunther, I'm immediately thinking, can Gunther just throw Ricochet around an arena for 20 minutes? They had an awesome IC title match. Keep doing that. Do that 100 times a year, 100 times a year, and I'm good. I think Gunther beat Ricochet for the IC title. Actually, yep. uh, when when he Just started his keep run, doing so. it. keep doing it, you know, do a best of 100 series where first to 51 wins. I just in my head, I still think like with any team, right? Because with with we root, we root for different teams. We watch different sports. Andrew, most teams in most sports, one team wins one year. The next team wins another year. The next team wins another year. And most good, good teams, if they're great, will win like one title. And then they kind of fall back into being a contender every other year. I still feel like there's a year with Ricochet, like with his name on it. I still feel like he could be packaged in the right way now to where he's having a big match at WrestleMania, one of the biggest matches one weekend. They got to do some work with him, but I, I still can see it in there. Do you think that he can still be that guy or what do you think his ceiling is right now where we talk? If you're going to do that, You don't necessarily need to do it now, but you need to do it probably in the next two or three years. Mm -hmm. He's 34 years of age. That's not old, 
but he's not a kid. And at some point he's not going to be able to do six thirty splashes anymore. And then if he doesn't have the mic skills to lean on, you know, he's got to sort of develop those a little bit, or you, like you said, you got to go now where he can still have these incredible matches that just wow everyone. Exactly. And, uh, so Ricochet, let's see what happens for him moving forward as we move forward to our final two matches on the card. And I asked Andrew earlier today, and no hyperbole, Andrew, I'm not even joking when I asked you this. And just to show you, you didn't even think it was hyperbole when I asked you. We may be looking at a show that has the two best back-to-back closing matches of all time in any WWFE NXT pay-per-view. And... There might be a few here and there that we can compare to this, but just saying that this is in that ballpark, in the conversation for maybe the two best back-to-back matches where we have an Aleister Black-Adam Cole match that anybody, I could not hear you, I will not listen to you if you say it's less than four, and it's it's a four-and-a-half star match or so to me, and then the, the last match is a five-star match. It's honestly about as good as it gets, and it was one of the highest-rated matches in NXT and WWE history. So, Andrew, first up, it's Adam Cole versus Aleister Black in an Extreme Rules match. We get the video package, Aleister Black with that awesome entrance, and Adam Cole coming out. He's all by himself. Big Adam Cole, baby, chance. And for these two guys, timing is kind uh, kind of funny because right now they're actually both doing pretty well in AEW, which hasn't always been the case. Adam Cole's been a little unlucky. He went right over there, and he had a scary injury with some concussion stuff, so excellent to see him back. He got a big win over Jericho there, and I, I will say the match wasn't very well-received because it was it's kind of weird bringing Sabu back. They got a pop for it, but overall, the, the match wasn't great. But Cole, is Cole, as we talk here, Andrew, he might be like the next guy or one of the next guys to face MJF. He's he's top of the uh, AEW food chain on the babyface side. Alistair Black, he comes into AEW after leaving NXT. First up, he goes to the, the main roster. They never really figured him out there. Never really figured him out. Uh, had the weird thing with the eye. He, he leaves and he's still selling the eye injury, though, which is great. I thought it was fantastic when he shows up in AEW, still selling it. Um, but right now, they've they've kind of found... They're footing a little bit with the House of Black. They've put the, the trio's title on them. And we're, again, we're seeing them on TV all the time. That's always been the biggest problem with AEW with a guy like Black. They'd, he'd show up. He'd have a great match. He'd beat Cody. And then he's gone for two or three weeks. And you can't build any momentum. So I've been sitting on this since we started recording. But story time. Not with Adam Cole, Bebe, but with me. Um, Please. Do you remember, Gino, there was an NXT show at the Hollywood Palladium that we went to, met up with a couple of people there? Absolutely. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was on, they, they put the ring on a stage at the Hollywood Palladium to where William Regal teased doing a stage dive off of the concert stage that they put the ring on. It was a really cool setup, the way that they did it. But on that show were a lot of people on this particular show. The time frame was, it was perfect. Take one look at whatever you want to call him. You can call him Alistair Black. You can call him Malachi Black. You can even call him Tommy End if you're a hipster. Take one look at him and the things he does in the ring and his presentation and the way he carries himself. Who, in their right mind, approved him getting cut by WWE in 2021? That is an all-time 
should not occur. You look at that guy who can work the way he does, talk the way he does, act the way he does, and by all accounts backstage, a first-class guy that, I forget what the story, who it was, it might have been Roman, who Roman had to tell him, dude, you don't have to clean up after everybody. That, that You don't have to do that. Who in their right mind saw that guy and went, yep, we don't need him. He's not really all that good. Nobody he, that watches the product. And that just baffled me at the time. It baffles me now because it took AEW a little while to get momentum with him. Well, well what's funny is, it, it, in a weird way, it didn't because he was immediately over, right? He showed well, up, he was, beats, but like kind of pops he, and beats Cody. And then he that, beats it, Cody, but then that doesn't elevate him as much nope. as it should. Nope, and that's right. the thing that got me is this guy comes in and AEW booked him outstandingly well Incredible. for a, yeah, but he just didn't catch. Like, and why I didn't you put know. him into a match with some like following that? Right. It's, it's what's next after that. Who are you going to place him in a feud with? And we never really, you didn't ever throw him across the ring from a, a Kenny Omega or an Adam page, right. Or any of them, the other top guys, it was just like he was in this world with Cody and, we didn't see him for a while until he showed back up with a trio. It yeah. was bizarre. Yeah, and, and low-key, by the way, understanding that Cody went back to WWE and is smashing it, and I want good things for the guy because he bet on himself, he was right, and he made himself a whole bunch of money. Shout out Cody Rhodes. There was a stretch of time in AEW where everything the Cody-verse touched was death. was not good. Well, because it was in a weird... You're right. It was in this weird side car of of the shows because Cody could never be around the title and and he he would he was always this weird character where he'd get some cheers, some boos. You didn't really know if he was a heel or a baby face. I think there were some things going on behind the scenes too that were probably hard on, on Cody and kind of weighing on him. I think he probably was dealing with a little bit maybe too much responsibility or or weight or someone who because of what his dad did he felt like he had to do things a certain way and be, you know, and I think that was a lot. That's a lot to carry sometimes. It is. You know? And look, Cody's in the best position possible for him mm-hmm. right now. He's doing great work. Shout out to him again. Watch the wrestling. You like, like what you like. It's okay. We're not here to bash that. The problem is Malachi black comes over. He has that first segment where he just eviscerates Cody and Arn. And he should have been so much more over than he was right then. But again, the Cody verse just killed him for a little while. That's the only explanation that I've got for a guy that is now thriving, leading a group with a guy in Brody King that not a lot of people had heard of two or three years ago, but Brody King is smashing it. And so too is Buddy Matthews, who was never seen as anything more than a mid-carder by WWE. Like, they're doing freaking fantastic work, and that's not even talking about the fact that Julia Hart as the valet has found herself as a character, too. It's just one of those instances where you look at this match from TakeOver Philadelphia, and if you were to tell me that WWE was going to mess up Adam Cole, I'd have understood why. Adam Cole is a phenomenal worker who has the entire package 
except he's 5'10 in a world where if you're not six foot four, you don't have much of a shot. That unfortunately hurt him, probably. And when whispers started coming out that they were going to bring him up to the main roster, they had some ideas for him. They were going to change his name. They were going to cut his hair. They might have tried to make him Keith Lee's manager. Just you can't blame the guy for leaving, least of all because his long term girlfriend was AEW's flagship women's wrestler. Well, and at so, the point, too, it's different. Like now, who knows exactly what's going on now, but we do know that at, as the current time, Triple H has a lot more power than he has yes. ever. He's supposed to be the yep. end-all, be-all, say-all. We don't know what Vince's still involvement is, but at the time, Triple H wasn't calling the shots at all, right? Nope. That was all Vince. So if you're Adam Cole, you really didn't didn't – trust and believe what was going to happen on the main roster if you weren't in the hands of Triple H who treated you like such a big star and treated you so well and Andrew I think it even goes to show how good Aleister Black is because even now like you said they're doing I think the last two months or so they've done some really good stuff on AEW oh yeah it still feels like it's been underwhelming for what he could be this could be your top champion of your company or someone who main events and closes shows like we saw him do on NXT. He is that good to where he could be one of the main focal points on your show. I'm not saying that what he's doing is bad at all, but it's sort of a, it's like a Daniel Bryan curse sometimes where some of these guys, like you said, they're, they're so good behind the scenes and they're such good people. They don't even push enough for themselves that they just sort of they're fine where they're casted. I think this guy needs to be casted as more of a star moving forward. I think injecting him, that doesn't mean you have to break up the group either, but injecting him as a singles into other into some of the singles title feuds, I think would really feel fresh in AEW because he's never even really been in those pictures given any sort of singles title shots at all. Right. And there's some matches with him that are really fresh. I'm not going to get too far into this because I don't think Sammy Guevara should ever, 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 ever be a baby face. And I don't understand why they're doing this. But if you're hell bent on making Sammy Guevara a baby face, have Malachi Black beat the crap out of him. There you go. I'd love to see him against Orange Cassidy with the different contrasting fun comedy versus the darkness there. Them doing a dueling sitting spot in the middle of the ring. Just book (laughs) it right now and take my money. Even a guy like Jungle Boy, who's a good baby face, there are there are like strong baby faces throughout the roster. He would be fun to have singles matches to see him destroy the Bucks one at a time. No, no, forget the Bucks. I was there for Revolution in San Francisco. And he had a sequence with Kenny Omega that yep. was five minutes, there we go. no breather, balls to the wall. Give me that once. Kenny especially, Omega and a hangman. Yeah. Boom, like, back to back, a, him and Paige. Yeah, especially if rumors are true and Omega's contract might be coming up reasonably soon. Just give me that one time. That's all I need. One time, 15 minutes, no rest holds. Give me those two and I'm good. Just it's one of those instances where thankfully they've figured him out. WWE should have been the ones to figure him out. And if you you have to wonder what would have happened if when this wave of talent went up to the main roster and we did a show that I believe was Alistair Black and Ricochet's goodbye 
to NXT where mm-hmm. they had a tag match with the War Raiders, if Triple H had gone up with them and taken control of Raw or SmackDown and been able to book those guys the way that he wanted to, as opposed to leaving things to Vince, who, if it's not Vince's idea, it doesn't really matter. You have to wonder what would have happened in that particular situation. Going back to this match, though, my the crowd God. knew the now, crowd knew what they had right before yeah, it started, Andrew. Now, they're going nuts. Yeah, at the, beginning. the big "this is awesome" chant before they do anything was really cool. I am usually not one for the hardcore brawling style or Me whatever, neither. but I will readily concede this is about as good as that type of match gets. And it didn't get like too crazy bloody or anything like that, which is something that turns me off usually on, on these types of matches. This was fun. Uh, right off the bat, Cole goes to the floor, grabs a chair. Um, Alistair's just sitting in the ring, uh, just patiently sitting. Um, then he actually, Cole goes in, kind of swings at him. He picks up the chair, and then he continues to just sit. Outside, they brawl for a little bit. Alistair hits a, a forearm. Cole throws some chairs in the ring. He throws a trash can in. He's setting up all the uh, the debris and all the toys. He, uh, they work outside by the barricade and they each grab a kendo stick and, uh, Cole's talking trash. He calls him stupid. Um, he's swinging the kendo stick this spot right off the bat though, man. So Alistair black goes for a moonsault off the middle rope and Cole, the most perfectly timed shot with the kendo stick. He hits him right in the stomach as he's doing a backflip. It's incredible. Timing. Ouch! Ouch! Incredible! Because how easy it could have been to like hit someone in the head like that, right? Yeah, when they're and, moving in ro- and rotating like that, like Adam Cole was just—he looked like he was sitting on a so softball pitch. There was a stretch, and this match was one of them. But later this year, I think it would be he would have a match with Ricochet, and they did. I don't want to call it the dumbest spot I've ever seen on an NXT show because I am sure that there were precautions in place and they knew what they were doing and all that other stuff. But it looked so freaking stupid that I remember seeing that spot and not going, holy shit, not going, oh my God, but going, why? Why would you do that? There was a spot where Ricochet did a moonsault and Adam Cole super kicked Ricochet in the head coming down. And the timing that you have to have to do that sort of spots, you can't teach. You either have it or you don't. And not many people have it like Adam Cole does. So Cole's in control now. He grabs the table. He sets it up, teases a suplex. Alistair fights Black. um, And then he hits a running knee strike. Uh, Cole starts to bleed a little bit here, so the ref puts the gloves on and goes to uh, to check on him. Now, Alistair grabs a table and goes to the other side, so we have a couple tables set up. You know you know they're going to get used at some point, but they're just waiting there as a little bit of a tease. We're in the ring. We get a ladder. Cole drop kicks the ladder into Alistair, and then they put it up against the turnbuckle, and they're climbing on it. And it was really cool. Adam Cole just sort of stops. And he like to the crowd, he does the Adam Cole, baby, when he's in the corner and the crowd just goes nuts. I thought I just that was a really fun spot just to show you how over this guy always is. And he sets up for an insiguri, uh, but Black puts him on his shoulders and sends him like back first into the ladder. It was just another crazy spot that was like a tough 
landing. Both guys are out. Uh, Cole gets a steel chair. He goes after Alistair's ribs. He goes for a running kick, but uh, Alistair gets out of the way with a double foot stomp to Cole's stomach. And then he puts Cole's head against the chair. Uh, but Cole gets up and throws the chair at Alistair and super kicks him in the face. And so Alistair is on the top rope at this point. It sends him he, – he throws the chair, and Alistair can't do anything but catch it. He tries to catch it so it doesn't hit him in the face. And then right after he catches it, Cole super kicks him, and he just falls like dead falls back through the table. And it's like, perfect. Incredible. You got one shot at that, and they nailed it. And it was like the the way he falls backwards, like he catches the chair, Cole kicks him, and he just boom, he's out, and then he falls. It's all so well done. You couldn't if you stopped and tried to do it again the second time, it wouldn't have looked as good. You just couldn't have even done it better. Um, so so cool here as uh, things really really start to pick up now. Crowd chanting, "This is awesome!" Really loving it. They both get back in the ring. Cole sets up two different chairs next to each other, and then he puts them back to back. And Alistair picks him up. Cole's in charge here, but Alistair reverses it. Fireman's carry. He slams Cole his back on the top of both of the chairs as they're set up. Just a brutal, brutal spot here. Uh, Alistair Black with a running knee. He gets the cover, and it looks like he's going to win. That's when O'Reilly and Fish come out and they pull him off. Um, and so they beat up Alistair Black. They give him total elimination. Their finishing move on the floor. Um, they're gonna they're about to put him through the table. But Eric Young and Alexander Wolf sanity comes up. Uh, so we get a big brawl. Killian Dane with a suicide dive. Uh, sometimes something like this can feel overbooked. Reason why I didn't mind it was because it just was a way to get everybody out of there. Right, it was just a couple minutes to get them all out, and then we could get back to Cole and and Black for that final part of the match here, which is what ended up happening. Um, Cole tries to put him through the table. Alistair fights back. Um, they're over by the ring, uh, the ring table or the announce table, and they have like an equipment box set up over there. And Black uses that to jump off, double knees, and Adam Cole goes through the announce table. When you look at this match. There are like four or five spots that you can say are so memorable. Like that's the like a great movie. You want a movie to flow, but if you have a couple spots that you remember from a movie forever, like that's what's great about some of the Marvel movies and stuff. To me, when I watch them all, is there one or two things I'm going to always remember? And this match, there are three or four different things that you just go, wow. And it's not even the best match on the show, which is nuts. The one following it is, um, man. Adam Cole at the very end, he's in charge. He hits a super kick as they get back in the ring. Um, Alistair, he kind of caught Alistair as Alistair was trying to get back in. He gets a super kick. So it looks like Cole's about to win. He goes for a chair shot, but Alistair avoids it and hits him with the black mass. Right before Alistair hit the the finisher, Adam Cole tells Tommy End, I'm going to end you. And then... Uh, Alistair hits the black mask. This was a fun match, Andrew. It really was. Like these last two are so good. It it was. I gave it four and a half. I couldn't go five. I did also four and a half because a lot of the hardcore stuff doesn't necessarily speak to me all that much. And also, I understand you bring sanity out, but 
they felt like lower mid carters who were punching above their weight class I agree. coming out and getting involved here. My thinking, you've got War Machine right there, and you're going to use them, and they're already under contract. Have them be the ones to jump the barricade. That would have been a great way to get them to get them started there. I agree with you. It felt sanity did just feel like they didn't belong as the ones that come out and make the save here. Um, yeah, and but, it's it's weird because they were a decent mid card group for what they were, and we now know the undisputed era because they were the top stable in NXT for a very long time after this. So it wasn't quite as big of a disparity at that point as it would eventually appear a couple of years later. It's just, it felt a little bit out of place there. Having said that, this is so good. And the psychology behind some of the bumps that get taken is so good because you're not doing anything that's overly gratuitous. There's no thumbtacks. There's no pizza cutter. There's no light tubes. There's none of that stuff. It's stuff that makes sense in the context of this match. And nobody's going absolutely insane doing these crazy things for absolutely no reward. Some of the things that get thought of in this match, like you wonder who had the idea for the, I'm going to throw you a chair. You're going to catch it. I'm going to super kick you and you're going to fall straight back. Like you got shot and go through two tables. Who has the ideas to do that? It's just one of those instances where you're going like that one after the other, after the other, it's as good a hardcore match as you're going to see in this particular era. And both guys came out of it looking so good looking like the future stars that they should have been for this company. And it's just one of those instances where you wonder five years later, how the heck are both of these guys elsewhere? We get to the main event. Uh, first, we get a commercial for the Royal Rumble. Then uh, Philadelphia Eagles cheers. They tell us that Triple H is going to talk about the show after on Facebook Live. They do actually more of press conference styles now after the big shows. And then in the crowd, another future NXT performer, EC3. He was Derek Bateman in NXT, left, did great work in TNA, in Impact Wrestling, and on some of the independents, then came back. And he just never got – he was okay when he came back on NXT. I think they treated him pretty well. But it just it, – I don't know. It never – with him, he was never treated the same way – in NXT or in WWE as he was outside of WWE when he was what the nephew of Dixie Carter, Ethan Carter, the third, he's got a lot of the MJF stuff in him, right? He's a, he's a heel that there have been similar templates of guys like this through the years. And they always do pretty well. And he's good looking guy built well, fine in the ring. But I think that was sort of the problem at the time is that, he wasn't quite as good as some of the others in the ring. And if he's a baby face, it's sort of hard. I think he was kind of in between. But another guy who you felt like there was a place for him and they couldn't really find it recently, you know, um, he, I don't know how you may feel about him, what he – some of his beliefs and what he's done since. But there's a lot of talent in there that felt like it, it might have gotten squandered in those years in WWE. So they bring him in. 
And he was part of that batshit insane six-way ladder match for the North American title. Which Another was good. show that we've looked at. That was a, you could make the argument that that's a five-star match. And that was so entertaining and so much fun. They bring him to the main roster. And I understand why they did that. Because he didn't need time in developmental. He was sort of a finished product already. And you knew what you were getting with him. The problem is they bring him up right around the time they reintroduce the scourge of WWE in the late 2010s, the 24-7 title. And at some point, the decision was made, okay, we need bodies chasing for this thing. Who do we get? Who do we get? Who do we get? Oh, let's put EC3 in there. That'll work. And that was the extent of the creative work done to EC3 in that WWE run. That was it. Nothing. And look, I am not the biggest fan of EC3 on a personal level for a couple of different reasons. He did the control your narrative stuff, (laughs) which look, I understand that was some people's cup of tea. I understand where they were going from to start because It had a couple of guys that had been done wrong by the bigger companies. And when they brought Braun Strowman in as the Titan or whatever he was called at ROH final battle, the last show before they went on hiatus, that was a legitimate buzzworthy moment. The problem is at some point along the line that went from control your narrative were denied opportunities to control your narrative MAGA. And that was never going to work ever. No, especially never. when Braun Strowman got re-signed. And by the way, Braun Strowman never should and carry and cross. I think both too, right? Both of those guys. Yep. It, it's one of those things where it just, it, it turned into something else really, really quick. And it was uncomfortable to watch. And now you're wondering, okay, EC three has got to be around 40. I don't have the exact age on hand right now, but You have to wonder if his time is done. And that's a shame because he's better than what he got this run in WWE, regardless of what you think of some of the stuff he's done outside the ring. It's just one of those instances where you look at what he was given and you go, that's all you have for him. It just didn't make any sense at all whatsoever. And in that regard, I feel bad for the guy. Main event time. We get to... Andrade Cien Almas versus Johnny Gargano. We get the video package for them. Johnny Gargano had never won the NXT title, and he had been one of the the darlings of NXT. So just him getting chances for title spots and title matches was always a big deal, and the crowd was so into him at every point. Huge ovation. We get the in-ring intros, and it's uh, kind of a feeling out process for the first couple minutes, some sort of grappling some mat wrestling Moro mentions how there's this Daniel Bryan like feel with Johnny Gargano as the crowd is behind him and everybody wants him to uh, to get the big victory and they and they show Candice LeRae in the audience and they mention that she's going to be uh, taking part in the women's division soon so Almas gets control early on chops to the chest Gargano big boot head scissors kind of clothesline and then Almas is out of the ring and they're battling outside Johnny with a big kick to the face, dive off the apron, and then uh, Johnny goes crashing onto the floor 
right in front of his wife. Um, Almas brings him back in, uh, nails a kick to the back, and then big headlock starts wearing him down, double stomp. Johnny comes back, big uh, suplex that sends him into the turnbuckle, and Johnny's working over with big elbows, a clothesline, insiguri, forearms, really quick offense. He hits a flatliner, um, sends uh, – they're outside on the apron, and Gargano – Hits a slingshot spear through the apron, which was an awesome spot for a near fall for two. Uh, Gargano with another big insiguri that almost catches him. I mean, we're getting really good back and forth here. Uh, Andrade goes up for a moonsault, and Gargano moves, and he ends up hitting a standing moonsault. Really cool. Um, another two count here, some near falls with almost in control. Back and forth clotheslines. And both guys are out. Then Almas hits a knee to the face. And he goes for his hammerlock DDT. But Johnny slips out. He hits a super kick. And Almas misses a big knee charge. And then Johnny hits a DDT off the apron. Um, crowd just going nuts at this point. Um, Almas, so Almas catches him with a forearm. And then hits a spinning reverse DDT. The little sequence here. Where they're like battling on the apron and Johnny jumps over and the slingshot DDT and then Gargano rolls into the ring. Like the crowd is just going absolutely nuts right here. And one of my favorite spots of the match, Andrew, before we get to like the final the third of this match, there's a jawbreaker and then some forearms by Johnny and then a back fist and he hits a clothesline and then a lawn dart. And so – He's in control right here. Zelina grabs Johnny's foot, and then Andrade hits a drop kick. Johnny's in the like in the back in the turnbuckle, kind of wavering a little bit. He goes for a small package for two. Then he hits this super kick, and the way he set it up, it just made so much sense. He did a pump fake, like he pump faked the super kick. Andrade kind of ca- cowered. Then Johnny kicks him in the gut. And then sets up to kick him in the face. It's just one of these things like you were talking about with the spots where they make sense to where you look at him and go, well, that's what I might do in a fight. You know, you sort of pump fake you, and then you you get your advantage. Man, this thing with still a third to go has been really, really awesome. And just no blown spots, everything fluid. And we got to say Andrade had been good at this time and has done really good work. But this was like seeing him on a totally different level. The problem with Andrade has never been, can he do this? We know he can. The problem is getting him in situations where he puts forth this kind of insane, oh my God, did you see that type of effort? Because when he puts the pedal to the metal and does the things that we know he can do, he is as good a worker as there is from bell to bell in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. The problem is, it seems like it takes a lot to get him there. You see his Twitter feed. He is not going to be quiet if he feels like he's been done wrong. And there are times where that has worked against him in certain forms and fashions. And there are also times where he's been the victim of just absolutely horrible booking. They called him up to the main roster and they had no clue what to do with him. Absolutely none. They bring and him, AEW didn't have any idea and they, they still no really clue. haven't. They have no, no clue. They don't know how to get him over. He's had two or three really good matches, 
but we don't see him at all. Now they've got him on the posters for Collision. Maybe he's going to be a part of that show, but is he even a draw at this point because he's been so cooled off? Like, you could absolutely get him back to that point quickly, but who right now is like, oh, I'm going to turn on my TV because I'm dying to see what, what they're doing with Andrade. He, Whenever we saw him, it wasn't good stuff. The storylines were bad, and overall, man, that, that's been a swing and a miss for them. And that's unfortunate because, again, when he is at his best, he's exceptional. He had a match in AAA with Kenny Omega not long ago, and that was exceptional stuff. Like, if you can keep up with Kenny Omega, you're one of about six or seven people in the world that can do that. But he's been squandered by two different companies now, and you wonder how much time he's got left and what it's going to take to get him to where he needs to be. Now, Johnny Gargano was in NXT for a long time after this. He had the heel stable, The Way, that was excellent comic relief. The bachelor party ahead of the index wedding is one of the best things anyone involved in that has ever done from a comedic perspective. It's just gold. But right after that, they go to NXT 2.0 and Johnny Gargano is a square peg in a round hole. He doesn't fit. He winds up around this time deciding to take some time off for a variety of different reasons. Candice was pregnant at that point. And also there were rumblings that Johnny just needed time off to deal with burnout and some of the injuries that come from working the style that he works. He comes back and he's done okay in the eight months or so that he's been back with WWE. He had a nice run in this year's Royal Rumble. That was pretty good. But there is a ceiling with him. And it's tough when you're that size in the land of the Giants and you're not being used consistently. Again, he's done okay this particular time around, but there were a couple of external factors with him that were troubling. And that's a shame because the guy is truly an excellent worker. And you laid out a couple sequences in this match that were just, oh my God, who the hell else can do this? You mentioned how Gargano got out of the corner and hit the super kick. You did not mention that the super kick was through Almas's legs with Almas bent over. Just who does that? Who does and again, that? And like, who's even thinking that we might be able to do that? Right? I like, mean, who? yeah, the unfortunate thing, and before we go into the last third of this match, which is insane, and this isn't unfortunate for her at all. I like Selena Vega a lot. But if you had shown me this match and said five and a half years later, the biggest star is going to be the woman outside the ring. I don't know if I'd have believed you. I know. But go and, look at Backlash and go look at that reaction. And and you know what? They're and I like what they're doing. They're getting behind her a little too now. They're she's gonna be in a match for a, a money in the bank qualifier. And it's funny because she's a now now a baby face, completely different role than she was. It just shows you how much talent that she has overall. As, yep, uh, and it who, goes to show you time changes too, because she got fired from WWE mm-hmm. a couple in, of years in not ago. a clean way. It was not. No, she started talking about unions, and unions have been a four-letter word in WWE since the days of Jesse Ventura. And so they boot her out, but she winds up with that huge following on Twitch, and she winds up staying relevant through that to where once things blew over, and WWE said, "Hey." We've got a couple ideas for you. Are you interested in coming back? They were able to mend fences 
And things have been great between them ever since. She became queen of the ring. She's been involved with the LWO and some really cool stuff. She's made the most out of the second run that she's had. And I don't know how many people, Gino, we can say that about. No, and she's actually, I believe, uh, married to Aleister Black, right? Yes, she is. So shout out. We see the both of them having big roles on this show. Andrew, if you, at this point, were just watching this match for the first time, and hadn't you didn't know what the result was going to be? The way that Percy and Morrow start laying it on about Johnny, there's just no way he's going to lose this match, right? <laughs> it just they start. I mean, they're doing the Daniel Bryan stuff, Johnny Gargano, no quit, and Morrow's just going nuts. Um, and almost climbs up to the top, double stomp on Johnny on the side of the ring apron. Oh, like oh my gosh! Then then he sends their outside. He throws him into the back of the ring, like the side of the ring, and Johnny's back of his head hits. And that looks like he may have gotten that spot where he may have been concussed or one of a few where he was was getting a little fuzzy. The ref checks on him, but almost hits a, a running double knee against the turnbuckle, crowd chanting fight forever, uh, almost with a couple smacks. But then Johnny comes back with punches, um, almost with a chop. Gargano with a big super kick Then he hits a reverse Hurricane Rana And then he's got the Gargano escape Submission locked in And almost is about to tap But Zelina grabs his hand And doesn't let him And that ends up breaking the hold Because the ref goes over to yell at Zelina And when he does that Almost like goes right to the eyes of Johnny Again just like perfectly timed spot The moment the ref goes over To yell at Zelina Andrade goes to the eyes of Johnny and then Johnny, he has to like let go and Johnny's kind of cowering and, and wincing and a uh, crowd really starting to get into this one. Then Gargano with a back body drop, then a suicide dive and all misses it outside in the barricade. But here comes Zelina Vega with a hurricane Rana that sends Johnny right into the seal step. And it's such a good Rana too. credit to <laughs> Zelina for hitting that. And also credit to Mauro Ronaldo. Morrow can go a little over the top sometimes. For the most part, though, on this show, he kept it in check. And his best line came here. He yelled, the bane of Gargano's existence, which I thought was just perfect. So now Andrade's back in control. He hits the hammerlock DDT for two. Crowd's just loving this. Gargano's back outside the ring. And as Zelina goes to run, she's about to run after him. This was one of the best produced spots that I can remember from WWE, and they do this kind of stuff really well. They you you see Johnny, and he's sort of stumbling on the outside of the ring. He's right in front of the crowd, and he's right in front of his wife. He's kind of like, like heading over in that direction, trying to get to his feet. And all we see is Zelina running around the ring, and now she's got like a dead straight line at Johnny. And you don't even notice, but out of the like outside of your camera frame, Candice LeRae leaps in and just does a straight shot right to Zelina, spears her for a really cool spot that the crowd just love. Like for Candice, one of your first welcomes to WWE NXT, that was a great spot for her. And it all made sense. Zelina's been getting involved over and over. Candice goes out, jumps on her, attacks her, big punches, and then Zelina runs to the back and Candace chases her. So now you really figure 
Johnny's got to win this thing. His so, wife jumps in, right? She chases Alina back. Everything's happening for him to win this thing. Yeah. Now, the thing with this match was, and the first time I watched it, I remembered thinking, oh, God, they're going to overbook Selena at ringside, whatever. And the first time I watched the match, I'm thinking, yeah, she's getting involved a little bit too much. But the second Candice LeRae hops the barricade, it all makes sense. Without that, the interference is a black mark on a match that doesn't need it. And with Candice chasing Zelina to the back, every near fall from that point forward is regardless. Yeah, it's clean and it makes it seem even more desperate because, you know, it's just those two guys and, you know, it's those two guys fighting for that gold belt outside the ring. I've said it a couple of times on this show. If you're playing the old wrestling watch drinking game, you're going to want to get your things ready here. Wrestling's at its best when it's simple. And that was so good. It was so masterful. And that's what elevated this match from four and three quarters to five stars is that one spot, that one decision that tied up everything outside the ring completely and just... It was so good, and you had two people who weren't necessarily full-time wrestlers or thereabouts, but that could play those roles so perfectly. It was perfect storytelling. And like you said, they had to hit their spots perfectly, too. And they did. Yeah. And it was it was great as the, the crowd's chanting, thank you, Candice. Johnny hits a big kick to the head, then a jumping DDT for two. He's got the Gargano escape submission on. But Andrade gets the foot on the bottom rope, and they're on the apron. And now Andrade pushes Johnny back first into the ring post. Johnny's head hits the post again, and he's he's a little dazed. We get a running double knee that sends Johnny back into the post. Ref checks on him. And back in the ring, we get the big hammerlock DDT off the top rope for the pin. Moro's concerned about Johnny's health and a possible head injury. But Andrade gets the victory here. This thing went 31 minutes, Andrew. This is a five-star match. I don't have any critiques for it. I really don't. Um, and in it, the story moving forward, I think, even makes it a five-star match because we know that Gargano will eventually get there. And when he does with Ciampa, it makes it that much better because after this match, when the crowd is excited and happy to cheer for babyface Gargano. They're giving him respect. His tag team partner, Ciampa, comes out from behind and hits him in the back with a crutch. And this was when Triple H started doing the the end of the show. They put the copyright logo on the screen, so everybody thinks the show's about to end, and then something's about to happen. Finish of the match was fantastic. The stuff after the match and what it led to was all great. And honestly... This is as good of a final hour because these last two matches go 22 and like 32 minutes. So we're talking almost a full hour of in-ring work and like an hour and 20, hour and 25 minutes of a sh- of a full show. Like you really don't get much better than that when you're when you're trying to watch pro wrestling content for like a, an hour's worth of, of on any show in any era. Yeah, and you mentioned this earlier as far as the best back-to-back matches to end a show. WWE has had a number of shows that we've talked about that have had multiple four-star matches on them. 
there are a couple of shows that have them in a row. Uh, the show that jumps out at me is WrestleMania 17, which is considered by many one of the best WrestleManias of all time. If you throw out the gimmick Battle Royal for what it was, which wasn't really a match so much as a nostalgia trip, you end that show with the three-way TLC match between Edge and Christian, the Hardys and the Dudleys, Undertaker, Triple H, and Rock Austin. That, to me, is the gold standard for ending a show. Gino, this wasn't far off. Uh, these were two matches with four of the best workers on the planet being given time to do their thing, being given the right booking to showcase the stuff that they were good at, and ending in a way where all four guys got elevated coming out of it. That is not an easy thing to do. And these last two matches on this show, it's some of the best wrestling that you're going to see. Good pick, my friend. There are some times where you do it to be mean to us, but this was a good pick. And no, we listen again. We you hadn't done you this forget in a while, and yeah, yeah and honestly, you, like we we needed to get back into the swing of things. I wanted to give us a nice, easy watch. This is you know five matches. We still managed to go about two hours, which I think if you're an over better, cash your tickets. Um, Boom. But good. it's just one of those instances where I was looking and going, okay, need an easy show to watch. Need an easy show to watch wait, we haven't done this yet. We need to do this. So here we go. And you know what? Now we're one more tick, you know, towards a hundred. And once we hit a hundred, that's when we all get the syndication. syndication. Money, right. I was going to say we can sell to, <laughs> uh, to, uh, Saturday night, uh, on TNT TBS and we could do it for a lot cheaper than AEW is giving you a spot. I promise <laughs> you our production costs are much, much, much cheaper. All and we you don't have, to, have do to worry about anybody starting fights backstage either. I was going to say, it's written into our contract that we just get allotted amount of money placed into our ADW accounts each week. So, you know, like it, it works. They got they got themselves a really good deal. Unfortunately, Andrew, you got to get someone else besides me negotiating your future contracts because I, I was a sucker. As soon as they gave me that, I said, we're in. We'll take a few pick fours. Um, okay, Andrew, overall, when you, it, it sort of feels, again, like a, like two shows separated. And I don't mean that as negative as it sounds because – the first three matches are solid to above average. The Cassius Velveteen dream match, we both didn't feel as good about because we know those guys can do a lot better together. But perspective, you have, we've re recapped a lot of shows. It's not like this in-ring work was bad. But those three matches, all solid. And then the final two were like, wow, all-timers. If these are some of your individual favorite wrestlers these might be some of your all-time favorite matches because they were that good with Aleister Black Adam Cole Andrade and Gargano and you see guys like this you know Gargano has had a few since Adam Cole has had a few since I don't know if Black or C or Andrade maybe, maybe like we said Andrade had one with Omega that was pretty good but I don't know if either one of them has had a better match since the only one for black that maybe I'd throw there was the six man match from revolution where the yeah. house of black won the titles. Yeah. But that's a great, the yeah. thing that individually stuck out at me, singles. Yeah. yeah. Singles. No, the thing that stuck out at me, by the way, about that match was where my seats were. I was basically in the 200 level looking straight up the aisle. And when you're seated there, you can see people getting into position for certain things before they happen. And look, that match is fantastic, and I loved watching it. But at that moment, I could understand a little bit 
the stuff Jim Cornette says about the young bucks and being choreographed and all of that, because you could see some of the stuff being moved around. Having said that though. Yeah. They, thankfully they found something with the house of black there, but from a singles perspective, I don't know if Alistair black or Malachi black or Tommy and or whatever you want to call him has had a match of this caliber since that point. And it, it, that's to be fair. Not a lot of people have. Andrew, we are back and in the books for NXT Philadelphia 2018. And because you were so nice with this one, Andrew, I'm going to hurt your feelings right now. I'm going to do it to you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But this is one of the ones that I think we're going to have a blast talking about, even though this does go down as one of the worst shows ever. Wait a minute, um, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're throwing a bad show at me and you right think after I'm going to be upset? I, right I after, love this. I'm I know. okay with this. Keep so, it going. But, what do we got? But here's, we got? What I, here's why I really like this show, because it's a bad show, but it does still have one really good match that will make it all worth it. And just being able to talk about why they even felt like this was going to work will be fun for us. We're going to go to SummerSlam because we're turning into the summer now. So I'm going to go on a nice little SummerSlam run for us over the next couple months and fill in some of the ones that we've missed. We're going to go to the worst SummerSlam main event of all time, 1995, where we have Diesel versus King Mabel in the main event for the WWF <laughs> Championship. But it's so bad. But before that, we get a... We get the second ladder match between Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. They go 25 minutes. It's a different match than we got uh, a year earlier. And Shawn Michaels is a babyface now. So the roles are a little bit different. But the rest of the match is still, or the rest of the card is still just bizarre to talk about. We get Bret Hart going 16 minutes with Isaac Yankum, DDS, Kane, one of the early uh, characters that Kane had. We actually have a women's match. This was when the women's matches would just randomly pop up. You just never know when you were going to get them. And it was Bertha Faye versus Alondra Blaze. The Undertaker goes 16 and a half with Kama in a casket match with the Godfather. Barry Horowitz has 11 minutes on the card. Barry Horowitz. We get and he wins. And he, he wins. wins. We get a Triple H match early in the card and a 1-2-3 kid match. So, again... Most of this card is bad, but there's one really solid match, and it'll be fun from a wrestle crap sort of standpoint because it's it's just a not great time period. Okay, this '95 um, time period. But, but but before we before we do this, I just want to I want to reiterate something you said at the outset. DZ, our thoughts are with you, buddy. When you talk to Darren and you tell him we're doing this show, I want it specified that you were the one who picked it because I will not I did it. be the target of vitriol from that guy. And I'm going to tell you, if there is vitriol coming my way for something I didn't do, know that I am sitting on a pay-per-view that makes SummerSlam 1995 look like WrestleMania 17. And that's not a threat, Gino. That's a promise. Andrew Champagne is always uh, very happy and, uh, and, and uh, willing to talk some wrestling with me. I'm lucky to have found a good friend that will come and kick back and spend hours recapping these old wrestling shows. We have such a blast doing it, and we appreciate all of you chiming in and helping out with us. And, uh, and anytime you share your thoughts on shows that we've done, always appreciate it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We're going to go to SummerSlam 95 for the next 
old wrestling rewatch. We'll try to get these out every couple weeks uh, or so. And then as we get into the summer, um, I think we'll have a, a little bit more time because the, from a sports standpoint, there's a little bit less going on for a few months. Yeah, but Andrew, I just there will be known by the way, the old wrestling rewatch going on the shelf while you did all the NBA stuff because the folks in purple and gold are making a really deep playoff run. And up oh, the Lakers lose. Oh, I guess I gotta go back to Andrew. Now we're Aaron back. Now we're back. Wrestling rewatch. We were uh, we were actually the last few months from a uh, work transition point was kind of a lot a lot of shifting around so busy but now we're kind of settling into a nice schedule and uh, it's great to have Andrew back talking some wrestling. My pleasure, buddy. Always fun on the old wrestling rewatch. Give him a follow too because it's a little bit of the calm before the storm for Andrew Champagne in uh, about six weeks or so. Things are going to get very busy for him come Saratoga time, middle of July through. Uh, early part of September so looking forward to always talking about a couple uh, racing cards with Andrew there and you are taking a trip soon right to let me know what's going on on your end give a give a plug or two before we get out of here I'm gonna go as quickly as I can because it's not one trip it's two trips Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday May 30th in less than three days I board a plane to jolly old England where I will be for a week for a work thing I fly from England to Germany a week from Friday, and then from Germany back to SFO on the following Saturday, which is Belmont Day. I'm home for four days, and then my long-suffering fiancé and I are headed to Italy for a week and a half. The Italy trip was planned six to eight months in advance. The England trip came together far more recently than that. It's going to be really busy, but you're going to be able to follow me on Twitter and on Instagram for updates on that. So by all means, if you like travel content from somebody that's pretty snarky and has a weird cross-secting interest in both horse racing and professional wrestling, I'm your guy. Twitter account is at Andrew Champagne. Instagram account is at 142 Winners. And yes, that's the Saratoga reference. My God, that's coming up in six weeks. It's going to be a really, really quick turnaround for some stuff. But uh, yeah, it's it's the calm before the storm in some ways. But in other ways, the storm is uh, bearing down my front door. And there's going to be a lot of traveling going on that I'm excited for. But when I come back here, there's going to be part of me that's going to be lagging somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. And that's going to take a little while for, for that to catch up. Well, I hope that you uh, you find Clooney. Over there, right in the perfect storm. He was in the perfect storm, right? Is that one of them? Did, did that it work was. at all? Did it that work was. at all? And Maybe. And he's I, got I, a place in Italy that I believe we might be riding by on beautiful. a boat tour. So we'll see. I may very well, you know, say, "Hey, hey, George, how you doing? You how you doing? Ocean's nineteen yet? Shooting a text out there, um, Andrew Champagne. Hope you have a, a great time over there. Safe travels, buddy. And we will talk to you again very, very soon. Make sure to follow all of Andrew's great content out there and. Uh, Don't go anywhere, folks. There's still a lot more to come on this episode of That's What G Said. That's going to do it for this episode. A big thank you to Andrew for helping us out with the old wrestling rewatch. Thanks to TK for helping us out with the Guardians of the Galaxy 3 deep dive. So coming this week, we will have some Santa Anita stuff for Friday and for Saturday. We'll have some Louisiana stuff for Saturday, Sunday, but we'll have the big one, the Belmont Park Saturday card, we'll go through all nine of the stakes races, uh, the graded stakes races. Matt DeSantis, Barry Spears are going to join me. So we'll get you everything you need for Belmont Saturday, in addition to Santa Anita stuff, Louisiana Downs stuff. And then we'll get you a conversation with Chad Cooper this week in wrestling. We'll also talk some NBA as the finals are now 
tied up one game to one. Eric will join us for that. We have Ant-Man 3 also, so a bunch of content coming out this week. Uh, This week in wrestling with Chad Cooper. Everything you need to know in the world of wrestling on top of Saturday Belmont. So good luck Thursday and Friday at Belmont. Hope we can make some money and pad the bankroll for the big days.